On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Mike Flanagan of Alternative Needs Transportation in Boston, Massachusetts. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. This week, we have Mike Flanagan. Uh, this is a heavyweight. Mike has worked at Fat City Cycles. He was one of the founding members of Independent Fabrication, both in Boston in the 80s and into the 90s. And then uh, he went on to do uh, alternative needs transportation, a lot of like cargo bikes and uh, different, you know, practical, uh, handsome and beautiful, but uh, maybe a little bit more straightforward than some of the super um, lavish bicycles that we tend to see at trade shows and stuff, right? And uh, Mike talks about that some in the interview. His interest in making bicycles that were, uh, you know, transportation and that were functional with cargo racks and fenders and these different things. And so I'm really excited to get him on the the show here to share a story. Uh, I can be kind of long-winded and yap, 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 and uh, I think Mike is the same way. So this one went on for a hell of a long time, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to Mike. Yeah, well, that really goes back uh, really to childhood uh, because I was interested in bicycles from, you know, when I was six years old, like, you know, like everybody else, but... It was, it was, uh, I think more so in myself than say my friends, you know, so I, I liked bicycles. I studied them. I was interested in what they looked like and how things were put together and started tinkering with them as a child. And that led to me being a shop rat, you know, bothering guys at the Schwinn shop and just being a constant thorn in their side. And uh, and also with them telling me, you don't want to work here. You don't want to work here. You know, you don't want to be in the bike industry. It, it, this is lots of negativity there, <laughs> but I, you know, kept going. And, uh, in high school, I, I became, you know, truly a cyclist, you know, had a, a specialty bike of, of some sort. I went through probably four bikes in high school mm-hmm. and, um, and then when I, I did not go to college, I, went straight to working in retail and that's you know when i bought my first uh handmade bike uh you know italian racing bike i became fit and and started racing a lot uh, or as much as i could while working retail which is difficult and uh uh, so i knew about hand-built bikes and you know in our town, we had a, a, a shop uh, that I eventually went, went to work for, and uh, they sold a lot of Bruce Gordon bikes. So it was probably Bruce Gordon was probably the, one of the first hand-built American bikes that I knew of and could see up close and could see it looked a little better than my Italian bike. You know, the finish <laughs> work was much better. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I loved my Wiener. It was it rode fantastic. It just, uh, you know, it had a lot of splatter and... And, you know, it just uh, the finish work wasn't good, which was, was not uncommon. European bikes were well made for usefulness, but for the finish work wasn't that great on the bulk of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so Bruce Gordon was a, a factor. And then I discovered that there were frame builders in Texas. Uh, I should back up. I grew up in Texas and um, in Fort Worth. And so 
that that was my my area of knowledge in, in the bike industry in the beginning. So there were some frame builders there, and at one point I remember calling a few of them. Uh, there were three builders that I knew of, and one was Skip Hysack down in Austin. And I called him up and wanted to be an apprentice. And he said, oh, no, we're just a mom-and-pop operation. You know, we don't have any employees. And, and uh, uh, he failed to mention that he took a class from Bruce Gordon. But, <laughs> uh, and, but it, you know, maybe he'd forgotten it was a lot of years before. And so I, I just kind of didn't really have anywhere to go. Uh, and I had... Briefly got out of the bike industry. I got a job at the at General Dynamics, which is the local defense contractor that where all my customers came from. You know, it's a huge factory making F-16 fighter pilot, uh, fight, fighter planes, and I managed to get a job there. And I worked there for two years, and that kind of got me the idea. It's like, wow, maybe I should find. Uh, a bicycle manufacturer to work for. I didn't know where they were, but I mm-hmm. thought, I'll, I, that's what I should do. I was miserable at the airplane factory, and I was also working part-time at a bicycle pro shop, so I was working two jobs. I, I should back up and say that I, there's one thing about me that people should know, and that is I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> and uh, I uh, have been off the wagon for six years, and uh, I've been, you know, been on, you know, and uh, it was, I just worked all the time. I've worked seven days a week, um, two, two jobs often, and cycling. I really don't know how I did it. You know, I would ride 300 miles a week. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I fit it all in. Um, yeah. I, when I was reading so, in your story on your website, there were a lot of mentions of like, so I had to work an all-nighter to do this so that I could do that. And then, you know, I would usually just work all day and then come home and then go to Hot Tubes and work all night. <laughs> There's a lot of mention <laughs> of that in your, your own sort of biography, which yeah, on, um, on, on the on the ANT website, your, uh, your history that you wrote is really good. Uh, for anyone who's interested in this interview, also you should check out on uh, his website his own biography that he wrote, autobiography. Thank you. So I, I got the idea to you know, try to find a, find a frame builder to work for, and I also forever wanted to ride my bike cross-country uh, across the United States. And I was... You know, I should also back up, you know, from what got me interested in cycling, it wasn't racing. It was uh, commuting and yeah. recreation and yeah. touring. I was really interested in touring. You know, I, my age was very influenced by the, you know, bike centennial uh, cross-country trip that people took in 1976. You know, I saw those images. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I was very interested in doing that. I, the racing came later because uh, my best friend, I got him into cycling, and we he had a few touring bikes, and then he bought a racing bike. And I said, what would you do that for? He said, well, I want to race. I was like, oh. And so I guess, I guess I'm going to do that too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we became very fit and started riding with the racing crowd, and uh, that which just increases your fitness even more. And then it be, kind of became fun. Uh, I really enjoyed training uh, with the guys. You know, I'd lead rides from my shop, and uh, it was we would. I enjoyed the training more than the racing. I was never very good at the racing part. Uh, it took years to 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 get any good at it, but I did love going on the 
group rides after work where we yeah. would just try to murder each other, you know? And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I really wanted to do touring. And so, uh, after I kind of got the racing out of my system, uh, and I was disillusioned with my factory job and I, I it kind of all culminated into saying, well, I need to get rid of everything and get on my bike and travel and ride across the country and look for a frame building shop to work for. And I was, you know, very passionate about that, but also quite an idiot. I had no idea where I was going or who to look for. I had no idea. So I uh, sold everything, got rid of all my motorcycles and bicycles. I had a giant pile of bicycles and uh, got rid of all my household furniture and had planned to just leave. And uh, But I did do it with a group. I did want to go with Bike Centennial. That's what Adventure Cycling used to be called. Mm-hmm. got to Seattle where the trip was starting. So I traveled a lot and I wanted to go across the Northern States because I'd been through a lot of the Southwest and uh, Midwest and East already. And so I thought, well, that'll be different. You know, mm-hmm. go across Montana and Washington. And I'm really glad that I did. So I got to Seattle, rode my bike cross country with a very loose plan and very little money. And, uh, my trip leader, she said, well, you should go to Boston and work for Fat City. And I only had an inkling what Fat City was. I was like, yeah, I think I've heard of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did that. I rode cross country, ended up in Maine where the trip ended, rode to Boston. Uh, and when I rolled into town, I had $20 in my pocket and, uh, an idea that there was this shop there that I, I did actually write him a letter while I was on the road and said, I'm coming, have a job ready for me. And <laughs> I sent him a picture of myself, like, here I am, you know? And, uh, so I, I got to Boston and luckily my mother, uh, was, my mother was a school teacher and she had some friends she used to teach with and they lived in the area. So I had some people to stay with for a few weeks and that was an immense help. So there was a lot of little help from a lot of people. So that that's just one instance. So yeah. I, I was there. I got to Boston. I made an appointment to be interviewed. And uh, I got to the shop and was you know, c- committed to working there. And uh, they, they said, well, you got to work a test day. I, I interviewed with Chris. And uh, he said, you got to work a test day. But, you know, you have to do it after the trade show because uh, – you know, uh, Anaheim show is going on Interbike, and we gotta go. And they took off, and so I called my shop down in Texas and said, "Well, go to the Fat City booth and you know, tell them I'm okay, and <laughs> uh, and that'll help." And so they said, "Yeah, no, no problem." And, and I, you know, they were it was a good shop. It was uh, a pro shop that I worked for, and um, this was the fellow that was friends with Bruce Gordon, and so he was an industry. You know, he was much older than me. He was an industry person. And so they went there and put in a good word for me, and, and Chris was impressed with that. And uh, so when they came back from the show, they he said, well, you know, we have an opening in the paint department. And I, I said, that's great. I'll take anything. And they wanted me to commit for some amount of time, a, a year or two. And I said, yeah, you know, no problem. This so was Chris, the late 80s. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 1989. Okay. Yeah, October of 89. 
And uh, so he takes me to the the blasting, the sandblasting cabinet, and this guy Henry's blasting a frame for the paint department. And I guess Henry had mentioned that he might be quitting and going to Seattle to you know be with his girlfriend or something, but he hadn't. Um, wasn't for sure about that, but Chris came up and said, Henry, uh, since you've said you're probably going to go to Seattle, uh, how about you make this your last day? And uh, and before you go, I want you to show Mike how to blast a frame. <laughs> wow. So, and Henry was like, well, I wasn't for sure about that, but okay. <laughs> and uh, so I was very uncomfortable. And... Uh, but luckily, it was a great place to start because anybody can sandblast a bike. Yeah. And they really had a really good sandblasting uh, cabinet. It was a pressure pot system. It was built into the cabinet. So, uh, you know, when you let off the foot pedal, the the pressure pot would release and the sand would fall back into the pressure pot. And then when you push on the foot pedal, it would re-compressor, uh, pressurize the uh, tank that was at the bottom of the cabinet. And, you know, it was like a $10,000 sandblasting cabinet yeah and uh super powerful it was really good and is there a lot of like that, finesse and yep. uh, not to sidetrack too much from the story but i mean i haven't done a whole lot of sandblasting i know you need to be a little bit careful not to like burn holes in the, the thin tubing and stuff and that maybe depends yeah. a little bit on which media um but i'm it, was that a, a an ongoing difficult thing that it required some finesse to to you know no no, uh, it wasn't. Uh, and the reason is, this was if you have a very powerful sandblaster with a lot of air, compress- air compressor CFMs, then you get smooth, consistent blasting. And so it's very easy to blast. If you have a shitty blaster and a small compressor, then it's more like a, you know, a pinpoint needle blasting. I and see. Then, then you can have problems with overblasting it. So ironically, mm-hmm. uh, the more power and air and volume you have, the safer it is for the uh, material. Yeah. Now, you could, if, if you're a technocrat, you could say, oh, if you're using aluminum oxide, it's putting micro cracks in the metal, and you need to use glass bead. Uh, and they would be right. But it wouldn't. It, the frame's not going to break because of the micro cracking from the. From the yeah. Um, you know, it's going to break because the guy was riding a mountain bike and thought it was. You know, he should treat it like a hammer. And. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in practice, was, it's not actually. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, there was there was there was some other um, outside force that was causing the failure. And, uh, but I got my foot in the door. I was a blaster and, uh, uh, Dean Dodson was the paint shop manager and he had his own company within Fat City called D and D cycles East. And he was brought over from California where D and D West is. And, uh, he sold his company to his assistant, came to Fat City and set up shop there. And so, uh, it was a great opportunity opportunity to learn how to do painting because it was a huge volume with that city and we did refinishing on all sorts of other frames uh you know new and used you know we did oe for other companies and so it was just a really high volume and he told me that right off the bat he said well this is this is a great opportunity to work and learn how to paint because we have such high volume that you can 
sandblast, prime, hand sand, and put bases on continually over and over every day. Yeah. And uh, and so when I got there, I was just the sort of the second paint assistant, which meant you know blasting and sanding primer. And there was another guy that was shooting primer and uh, base coats. Uh, and you know Dean would do the final coats and the clears and the fancy fancy paint jobs. And but the paint assistant broke his hand soon after I got there, and he kind of lost his position. So. When he came back to work, I had moved into his spot. And I was very, you know, I was 25 years old. I was really interested in being a professional and at, you know, whatever I was going to do. Yeah, and for sure. So it was going to be paint. And also there was this incentive to get paid more. So if you could make shippable product, then you would get a pay raise. Mm. So uh, when you start, you know, it was like six bucks an hour. <laughs> really really hard and uh so so there's an incentive there and i was just a i'm a fanatic you know i i love bicycles i love details and like i said when i was a child it kind of set me apart from my friends because i would build models and i would paint everything you know build build a car model and i would paint every single piece and you know glue on the uh you know, pieces of thread to make it look like it had uh, spark plug wires, and wow. and my my friends would say, you know, they would just build a model and paint the outside of it, and not paint the interior or underneath. And like, they're like, who's going to look under there? <laughs> yeah. So I was detail oriented and a fanatic, and so working in the paint shop was uh, a great place to go because I could. Um, it it was all about you know the finish work. So, and, and this was an era, I mean, the 1980s or into the 90s, uh, bright, bright colors. I mean, when I think of Fat City, I think of all these, uh, you know, these bright, like, sort of neon greens and different colors. Were you guys, yeah. uh, I mean, was that fun for you to do the, the sort of zany stuff? Was that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of splatter paint jobs. Oh, yeah. And that was fun. So, you know, you take a, a long uh, pinstriping brush and dip it into uh, the paint and, you know, flick it. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, Stat City was known for wild paint jobs. So, and most of them were freeform. Uh, it wasn't like today's paint shop. <laughs> you know, was, it, was uh, a little, it was a little yeah. more rough. You know, the yeah. artwork was a lot more rough. Yeah, the, the paint on the con- the contemporary painters today are just astoundingly talented. I think the work. Yeah, that, there's, there's no way I could do anything contemporary. Did you have the vinyl plotters to be doing that sort of masking from like vector files uh, back in the nineties? No. Yeah, everything was done by hand. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there were decals uh, that would be printed, you know, at a, at a shop, and yeah, the water uh, wet side on, ones. Yeah, but. Yeah, but most of the art at that time, uh, all the masking was done by hand. So, you know, I'd cut it, I'd, you know, use masking tape and fine line pinstriping tape and, uh, you know, cut it with a razor blade or an X-Acto knife. And, um, and then the specialty artwork we would have an artist do and it would be, you know, hand painted on with a brush or a paint pen. And then we would clear coat over that, 
Yeah. Uh, it was a different. Yeah, it was definitely a different style. A lot more homey, mm-hmm. I would say. And uh, with exception of the restorations, you know, the, which was separate from Fat City, but you know that those had to be a little more uh, precise. Yeah. And but what was good about painting at Fat City is since we did a lot of fluorescents and candies, it's a great way to uh, learn how to paint because uh, it's very difficult to spray because it's very spotty. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you have to put it on very evenly and not have too much buildup uh, in the corners. And uh, so I sprayed a lot of those as the base. Um, so I learned really quickly. You know, with the nine months, I felt like I was really pretty good at it. And I was able to move up to get the pay raise. And then I could kind of settle down a little bit. And, you know, and my diet got a little better. And, <laughs> uh <laughs> But it was a lot of fun. I have to, I have to back up. Uh, I've been a little spotty and jumping around with my story. But what the the main thing I'd like to say is that when I got to Boston and to Fat City, it was very comfortable. Uh, the Fat City was a really funky place. It was an old, dilapidated building, and everybody there was uh, roughly my age. You know, about twenty five. Uh, there was roughly about twenty five people there. And, you know, 95% of the people there were heavy into cycling and uh, also, you know, art and music and culture. And it was, it, was, it was the place that I wanted to go. And that's why I left Texas. And that was uh, so very comfortable. You know, so, I, the, the building that I think that work was done in, right, was, uh, I, I visited Boston in 2010, and I visited uh, Brian Hollingsworth and Ian Sutton, who were sharing a space, and I think they called it uh, Fringe Union at the time, right? Is yeah. that the same building? Yeah. Uh, no, it was across the parking lot. So, okay. Um, where, <laughs> where Fat City was, so Merlin was in that building that was, Merlin was in the basement below where Icarus and Hollingsworth were. I see. That, that whole bottom floor was Merlin. And then across the parking lot, there, you'll see some condominiums. I call those the Chris Chance condominiums <laughs> because that is where Fat City was. Fat City, all the buildings that were Fat City, there were three of them, mm-hmm. are gone. They're, they've been mowed over. Turned into uh, condos. Turned, turned into condos. Yeah. And uh, so but the, the building that we were in, uh, there's some pictures in that uh that I sent you on Flickr yeah. that I took, and uh, where it says this is this way to Loserville, that, that <laughs> section. Um, that's where, that was the Fat City building, and it was like this, you know, the roof was like a, um, you know, like a sway back horse. You know, it was it was it was really a dilapidated building that used to be a cookie factory, mm-hmm. and uh, very rambly, and it leaked a lot, and and. Uh, where the spray booths were, they had ripped out all the support beams to put the spray booths in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if, so if you crawled up through the false ceiling to get above the spray booth and the paint area, paint, paint prep area, you, you'd shine a flashlight there and you'd say, holy shit, this is going to fall in. You know, this would see all sagging and all these weird supports. And uh, so it was a pretty wild uh, place. And, uh, but we put a lot of work out. It was, uh, I, I listened to the interview you did with Chris, and so you know the numbers. You know we were doing about you know sixteen hundred to eighteen 
I think eighteen fifty was the biggest year, and uh, so you know a couple thousand frames a year. Yeah, that's crazy. A lot of volume, and uh, and it was everybody there was very energetic. Uh, some of the ones that had been there for several years were a little jaded because you know they weren't they, they had their enthusiasm was you know waning over the years. Um, so there was some turnover uh, with some people that got tired of it, you know, for yeah. the low pay or, or you know all the other problems. And uh, but you know Chris was a good guy. I liked working for him. He had a good sense of humor and very lighthearted and uh, and. One time, so let me back up a little bit. So Merlin had emerged out of Fat City. So Gary Helford wanted to build titanium frames. The first one was built in Fat City. Uh, this is before I arrived. This is like, you know, 87. Yeah. And uh, 86, 87. And uh, so Chris, would, I don't think Chris was interested because you'd have to bring in an investor to bring a bunch of money. So Gary got an investor and moved across this parking lot and set up shop <laughs> across from us. And when I arrived, it was, you know, two separate companies and, uh, Merlin, you know, Fat City was kind of fun and wild and Merlin was a little more, you know, kind of black and silver and, uh, they, they you know, didn't let us, it, it was more separate. Like, you know, they're very secretive when you put it that way. Yeah. And, you know, they had a bunch of professionals there, you know, they, they had this, woman that was the president of the company and she was a very good business person and and you know she was smart to kind of keep things private and uh but they they, they weren't quite as fun as we were i would think and so one time chris uh or one time this this bike arrived it was like a warranty or something or a repaint and somebody had it was a fat chance that they sent it back to us to get repaired and it was completely suspended in the cardboard box with about a 5,000 rubber bands, you know, <laughs> and so it, it, it was like, you know, you could touch it and it would bounce. It was really clever. And so Chris calls up uh, the leaders over at Merlin and said, hey, you, you need to come over and check out our new suspension bike. <laughs> and so they came over, the uh, two or three of them came over, and they were, they had these looks on their face because this was, you know, before really suspension was a thing. Uh-huh. And, uh, I don't even think the rock shock was out yet, you know, and uh, so they come over and they have these looks in their faces like oh, very serious, like, oh, what, what are they going to, what are they going to show us? And they look in the box and they go, we said, here it is. And they look in the box and they didn't laugh. <laughs> they just sort of <laughs> like, oh, what? And then they left. Wow. And, you know, Chris and, and the rest of us just kind of looked at each other and we're like, <laughs> I didn't even think that was funny. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. So there were a lot of situations like that. You know, uh -huh. just, just just piles of them. Well, something that you're kind of expressing though is that for you, you know, it was homey or whatever. You had this community there of all these other younger people, ninety-five percent of whom really loved bikes. Uh, you know, I think for a lot of us who have some sort of employment in the bike industry or trying to make our, our careers in the bike industry or aspire to make bikes or something. It's that's sort of the allure to one degree or another. It's like there's it's partly a social component and it's partly just that you just want to make something that you care about that's beautiful with your own hands. It just sounds a lot more meaningful and attractive than doing anything else. And so 
uh, you know, you experienced that and there were pros and cons of this whole environment and working there, but that was one of the things that you really liked. And I think a lot of us go into the bike industry, that's sort of the attraction is like the, the culture of it and the fit of it and, and the satisfaction that comes from making something. And because so few of us enter with like clear business aspirations or experience with like running a company or knowing much about this, I think it's no surprise that a lot of these companies are not always managed that well and the people don't always get paid super well. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. it, it seems like they almost necessarily come together. Not always. Probably some bike companies are run really well and a lot of fun, but it seems pretty rare. It seems like you have these companies that are serious and probably not that fun. And then you have these ones that are a lot of fun that are like always on the brink of bankruptcy. Right. Like, does that jive with yeah. your experience? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Merlin, for example, was, uh, you know, they got paid a little bit more and they had more rigid hours and, uh, you know, it's a little more stiff, but they, you know, were doing better financially. Uh, I know eventually in the end it didn't work out so well, but, you know, for a long time, you know, even when things weren't bad, you know, they were profitable and, uh, and the employees were kind of treated better, but they weren't quite as happy. I don't think that my friends there, mm-hmm. um, so there's definitely some trade-offs, uh, and, you know, I could go down the negative road and tell you about all the bad things that happened to me at that city. Uh, but uh, it's just, uh, it didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, some days I you know, might lament about that, you know, privately with somebody. But it's there's just a lot of great times that I remember. And that helped me continue forward with the next projects. Yeah. Uh, and all the way up to, to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you're you're working uh, at Fat City for a handful of years. You learn paint, and you got your hands on welding before you left, right? Yes, yeah. So I uh, was I was worked there for five years, exactly. And while I was there, uh, uh, I, was, I was sort of getting tired of the paint shop, and uh, um, and I wanted to weld. I mean, I wanted to do everything. You know, I really dreamed of just having to be able to do everything. But it was what it was a little guarded there in the information. So, you know, even in the paint shop where I was working, you know, the guy that was training me wouldn't show me everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the, the I know in the machining area where they cut the tubes, you know, they were kind of protected there. And so it was kind of hard to just move around and do things. Uh, but you could. And so I did that with TIG welding. I, um, you know, got along with the welder there. Uh, the, 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 the welding manager and he, I said I wanted to do it. And so he set me up on the machine with not a lot of instruction. He's just like, this is how you do it. And there's the switch. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I just started off welding really thin tubes. I would notch some tubes and weld them together. And, and I got it good enough. He's like, okay, well, you've got it. You just need to practice. You know, you're pretty good at it. So, uh, and that was it. So it was all on my own. So I would just every once in a while weld some tubes together uh, in between all the hours of working. And and I, I, at some point, uh, several years later, we moved to a new location and had expanded some. And um, I was interested in moving into the welding department, but I had gotten really good at painting. And I had a meeting and said I wanted to move to the welding department. And they, Chris said, well... You know, if you go in the welding department, you need to take a pay cut. 
And I was not interested in doing that. So I think it was sort of an incentive to keep me in painting because it was much more difficult to find people to go into the paint department. I see. And, and you were already uh, good at it. I was already good at it. And, and then at the same time, I was kind of like, well, at that point, I would think I was running the paint shop. So I was like, well, you know, I, I don't have a manager. So nobody talked to me or bothered me. I just, I did everything. And I had, you know, a couple of assistants or one assistant and it was a completely sealed off area from the rest of the shop. And so it was my own little world and, uh, I could listen to the music I wanted to listen to. And, um, so I was like, well, I'll just stay in the paint shop. You know, it's, I'm a professional at it. And so that's what I'll do. But then, you know, I really did want to do everything and I thought welding was uh, the way to go. And so when the company uh, was having trouble, we moved to this gigantic location and spent a lot of money and they borrowed a bunch of money and uh, a bunch of things sort of led to its demise. And so they, you know, cooked up the idea to cook the, uh, the idea privately to sell to Serata and combine the two companies, which was actually a really good idea because, you know, Serata was really a road company and, uh, City was really a mountain bike company, even though they both did both. So it it would be a good mix. Um, and so when they sold the company and spread the news to the shop, uh, you know that they, they had offered me a job to go to Serata and be a painter. And uh, I was married at the time uh, to my first wife, and she wasn't interested. She worked there too. And uh, and then when Serata came, their production manager came, said, oh, yeah, we've heard a lot of great things about you. We really want to have you, but I can guarantee you you're going to take a pay cut. But the cost of living is really low and up in upstate New York. And <laughs> I'm like, man, you guys are, you know, close to Saratoga. That's, that's not cheap there, but I don't yeah. want to move there. You know, I'm, I'm an urban guy. I'm in Boston, and, uh, and you're not selling it. So I've thought, well, maybe I'll open my own paint shop. And... But I was a little scared to do it, you know. Uh, and that's when it, you know, sort of morphed into uh, independent fabrication. Now, yeah. I should back up. There's something that I wanted to tell you uh, and the listeners about the Yoetti and the segmented fork. Oh, yeah. And because uh, I'd listened to the interview with Chris and you'd asked him about it because it's, you know, it's very influential bike and the fork of course is just rampant in the hand-built world now mm -hmm. and so the way that came about this is the way i remember it and i was there i didn't make the fork or design it but you know i was there we had meetings all the time the, the whole shop you know we'd have every monday we'd have a meeting yeah and uh go over the numbers and everything talk about marketing so we knew everything i paid a lot of attention to what was going on so what happened is, yeah, Chris and Jeff Pedersen was the purchaser, uh, and he was from the West Coast, and they went out to do uh, an exploratory mission uh, to the West Coast and you know, visited dealers and you know, maybe visited some of their other frame shops, uh, but mostly dealers. And when they came back, they said, everybody we talked to, they love Klein, and they love you know, the fat tubes and their paint jobs and, uh, you know, the sloping top tube. And uh, there was just 
all these things that the that people kept saying that they just loved it. And Fat City wasn't in need of any orders. I mean, we were slammed with orders, but I think they were getting the feeling we need something. You know, you can't just go on. You got to come out with something new to keep the ball rolling. Yeah. And that is true. Unfortunately, that is very true in products. Uh, you know, bringing out new product gets more sales. I just, I yep. really hate that idea, but you know, <laughs> I'm kind of against that. I'm against that sort of mentality, you know. But you've but seen it work. I think it works. And so, uh, and, and then the last little thing that was part of this, uh, last little caveat about this new bike is it had to fit the specialized extreme 2.5 inch wide tire. Because all through the late 80s, and was everybody was going smaller. It's like, you know, 195. Well, of course, all 26 inch. <laughs> uh, 195 tires, you know, everything's really skinny and fast and really low, you know, the stems really long and way low and, uh, really race bike oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, fat tires, just fat tires slow you down. So everything was going skinny. And then this, this 2.5 tire came out and it didn't fit in anything. It's like, wow, you know, single bin stays, uh, and they wanted shorter chain stays. So it had all these problems. And then the fork uh, it wouldn't fit in the Unicrown. I see. And we, and we had the box crown, which was a beautiful fork and could have been easily made to fit the tire because you could, you know, we created the box so it, you could make it any width. But we were kind of having some problems with the box crown. It was really difficult to make. It took a lot of finish work to make it look right, a lot of grinding. And it wasn't that strong for kind of the, you know, continuation of how the mountain bike was going to be treated. Yeah. And, uh, and cause we kept making them lighter and lighter and that wasn't conducive to the abuse. <laughs> and, uh, so it was a beautiful fork though. It was, you know, fat city, uh, um, you know, specialty. So, so we needed a new fork. So first they, you know, they tried to widen the Unicrown, you know, with the blades we were getting from True Temper, and it just kind of looked funny, and and uh, the bend wasn't right. And then they came up with this box crown that had straight one-inch legs, I think, and it was at you know it was uh, you know at a angle, and you know that worked, but it didn't quite look right. And Jeff Federson, the purchaser, he was staring at a bunch of stuff that was in his desk uh, that was left over from Chris Chance cycles. One of them being the Henry James road Ford crown. Yeah. And if you look at that crown, if you're familiar with it, you can see that it looks like a segmented fork. Yeah, no, it does. So the, the connector sort of shape on the top looks tubular. Yeah. And he said, he came up with the idea. He said, what about tubes coming out and then cut it at an angle. So it's got the fork rake in it. And, um, and then, and as Chris noted, he didn't think it was a good idea, didn't think it would be strong, and uh, guys in the shop made it anyway. <laughs> and it looked great. Everybody, everybody just went nuts over it, and it fit the tire. And then, uh, luckily, Chris, as he mentioned, uh, was really good in, in testing and designing, and um, and we had a, a lot of friends that had equipment to help us do uh, these uh, destructive testing and cycle testing. And we built machines too, to do it, but they had, you know, they were engineers and could really help us 
So they had the Ford tested, and it failed. Uh, the first ones, you know, like failed in a way that we, we, you know Chris was really not happy. And that's when he came up with the idea with the little gussets that go on the back because that's the spot where it was failing. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, heat treating the preheat treating the tubing. So those the little struts were heat treated, mm-hmm. and I believe the blades were too. So that fixed the problem, and. Uh, and then luckily he patented the design for Fat City and that, you know, protected the design for 10 years or, yeah, about 10 years. Wow. And, uh, and it, you know, became, a, you know, a really signature piece for the company. And then with the Yoetti, you know, we had to come up with this color. Uh, so we did, we did fluorescent orange was really popular with us and green and some of the other fluorescent colors, a lot of orange. And so they said, we got to come up with something different. You know, it's got to be different from Quine, but yet the same. So, <laughs> so we mixed, so we mixed uh, fluorescent yellow and green together, and that's how we, how we came up with Grello. That's, that, awesome. that's what that color is. And it was widely popular and kind of hurt us a little bit because, unfortunately, the word got out that we were coming out with this new bike, and everybody canceled their orders on their wickets. That's funny. And so... Oh, it was because we didn't have the fork done yet, so we were still still testing it. So there was some build. We made some bikes. We'd taken pictures, and you know we're working on it. And then the you know the fork kind of had needed some uh, uh, needed to get uh, improved so it wouldn't fail like we had done in the test. And and that was all in the works, but it takes a long time. And, and yeah, they does. decided to, they they wanted to get those uh, little tubes laser cut, and it was at a compound angle. You know, yeah. To get the, the the steer cut and the fork blade cut, you know, and also it goes down at a sixty degree angle. So uh, we didn't really have the tooling to cut it, and and so they had a laser cut, and that took a long time to get designed and done and priced, and and also after it's laser cut, we said, oh, you can't weld it because it's got all the laser slag on it, which you can't really see, but it kind of makes a film on it that doesn't like welding. Yeah. And so I think we had to get a tumbler. So this is, you know, this yeah. is like with making anything. You design something, this is going to be great. And then, and they said, oh, wait, it's not going to work. We got to, you know, come up with uh, all these modifications to make it yeah. really happen or make the tooling or. That's you know, actually. It always takes longer than you think. <laughs> yeah. And that's really relevant to something I've been thinking about in my own world with the, the tools that I make for frame building is I've been working on a frame fixture. And I know I knew from the beginning it was a big, ambitious project and it would take a long time to really finish it and really ship it. But I just the last week, I just keep thinking about this idea that like one of the biggest problems with something like that is that you can't really sell any of it until you can sell all of it. And so you might have had the frame done you might have figured out the paint you might have engineered the fork but like it's it's only as strong as its weakest link and so if you're just waiting on the the laser cut tube connector segments and the tumbler and the last couple things and meanwhile other people are like you know canceling their orders to the other one and it's like you you have all this time and inventory and all these things that you've invested in and you can't really sell any of it until you can sell all of it and that's just a killer it's like you know, hopefully you reach the end of the tunnel and uh, and then it starts working and it pays off. But in the meantime, like you better you better be prepared for it's going to be a long one. Yes. So with any business, you really need 
a lot of money in the bank to take the ups and downs. Yeah, especially if 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 it's a complicated thing you're trying to release, you know. Yeah. Big big ambitious project. Yeah. So and the bike industry, handmade bike industry, that's uh, incredibly difficult because people tend to not have money in the bank <laughs> to to take the ups and downs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and even if you did, you know, you need to be pretty judicious about how you do it because there's a lot of failed enterprises and so you don't even if you did have the money you don't just want to carelessly blow it you know you want to be pretty careful with it too so it's, yeah. it's tough yeah. but yeah we you know so fat city was very successful in a lot of ways you know we had a, a good crew particularly towards the end uh we had the best crew and the best systems uh everything was going really well but we had taken on all this debt and moved into this giant location and the bills were a lot higher. So when we were in the old cookie factory, we were kind of getting free electricity. (laughs) (laughs) It was connected to a a long string of other buildings and, you know, it's new England. It's kind of like, well, you know, whatever you just move in here and electricity is included. You know, you're not going to use that much, right? No, no. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and, and this was a long time ago. You know, things were easier back then. And, uh, you know, the, the, the building should have been condemned, the one that we were in. Yeah. So yeah. when we moved to the new building, it was for real, you know, real power, real bathrooms, real, you know, <laughs> didn't leak. Uh, it was fantastic, but it cost a lot more. Yeah. And uh, so there was that and the crushing debt. Uh, and then... Lastly, we had we sold a lot of bikes to Germany. So we had a huge distributor there. They were nuts for Yoetti. It was a good relationship, except you know it tied up a lot of the money in sales. You know, we would have you know the loading dock full of bikes to go to Germany, and then that distributor sort of didn't pay, and then they didn't buy, and then they came up with their own bikes. You know, made in Taiwan and. Uh, and that city just couldn't weather that, you know, that transition. It was just, it was, it didn't work out, you know. And uh, so that was kind of, you know, putting the screws to it or some parts, body parts and a vice. And uh, uh, that's what led to it, you know, being sold. And a lot of, a lot of people were really upset about it. But it, for me, it's like the greatest thing that ever happened because it finally pushed me to, do something else because mm-hmm. otherwise I just probably would have worked there the rest of my life, you know, yeah. as a painter. And, uh, um, so it pushed us out and, and it was a little strange, you know, the way it happened. I felt really bad for Chris. He was pretty sad. And, uh, um, cause he lost a lot and he was, you know, very passionate about cycling. And, uh, um, so that, I felt really bad for him. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Serata came in, took a lot of the stuff, you know, and and it they left it kind of in a mess. It was a big building; it was like nineteen thousand square feet, and yeah. it was full of shit. You know, there's metal and racks, and uh, I think you might have seen a few pictures of it if you looked at that flicker, the second flicker mm-hmm. of it, yeah. Linden Street, and uh, so me and the guys uh, that we started IF. Uh, you know, started off with like almost all of us, you know, meeting. And then it got down to, you know, like 20 of us, 15 of us meeting at my house. And 
we talked about starting a new company and then it whittled down to six people and, um, you know, and they wanted me because I was a painter and so we had all the elements to make the company. We just didn't a new company. We just didn't have any money and, um, and we made a deal. Yeah, we made a deal with the landlord at the place we rented, the, the Pat City uh, spot. It was full of shit. And we said, we'll clean it out. We'll get rid of everything if we can have all the stuff. So uh, it was just a lot of useful things, you know, welding tables, welding screens, uh, racks and shelves and workbench. Like my workbench is from Pat City, mm-hmm. one I have in my basement. <laughs> That's <laughs> so awesome. It tra- traveled the years. Uh, so there was a lot of useful things. It was it was worth it. There was a milling machine, two milling machines, and uh, a lathe. Warren Swayze number three, I think, really big turret lathe. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they couldn't fit everything, so they just left it. And uh, so we stored all that stuff and started looking for space and um, started doing odd jobs to stay alive. And I started selling all my bicycles to fund the new company. And I don't really even know how we did it. I don't know how we did it. We just uh, somehow scraped by. I mean, things were a lot cheaper then. That really helped. Yeah. So, you know, when I first moved to Boston, you know, my the, the apartment I lived in was 700 a month. I split it with two people. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, life was just a lot cheaper. And... Uh, but finding space is difficult. It's probably the most difficult part. And so it's, we spent months looking for space. When I, in 2010, when I visited in Boston, I went to IndieFab, which at that point was probably in the same space that you, you started in in 95. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no, it was a couple of years later, like 97 when we moved to there. Okay. So when we started, we were in a basement shop over in Dorchester. Uh, there was a shared space. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother story. But yeah, you came and you, you visited uh, Icarus and Hollingsworth, and then you, you went to. I didn't know you went to IndieFab, but you went over yeah. there. That was well. They pretty. The, the guys said, you know, you should check it out. It's not that far. And then I had driven, but I had my fixie in the trunk, and I put the wheels on, and I biked a mile or a couple blocks or whatever it was over there, and I just rolled in, and and I was like, can I get a tour? And somebody showed me around a little bit. They. <laughs> They made a little <laughs> bit of time to show me around, and uh, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, yeah I had never seen anything great. like that. Yeah, it was pretty well set up at that point. Um, had they expanded into the other space, it was like double. Uh, when I when we started there at Joy Street, we were just uh, one side of the building, and uh, and then there was a glass blower on the second side, and they moved out and they expanded. This was after I left. They expanded into you know doubled the size of the space and uh and those windows would look you know off to the sunset you know out west mm-hmm. so uh i don't know if you saw the big space or if it was still on the i don't even remember that thing. clearly now but i remember yeah there's two tubing, yeah. tubing racks and a mitering area and a paint area and the rest of yeah. it's pretty foggy because i didn't even know yeah, yeah. at that point i didn't even really know what like a bridge port was or i had just gotten sort of interested in the idea of frame building and it was all very romantic to me, but I didn't really know enough about it for most of the details to, to mean that much. Yeah, I completely understand. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting how you can see things with different eyes later on. Oh, yeah. No, you notice all the different, you, totally different things stick out to you when you kind of know what to look for. So. Yeah. 
And so IF was uh, kind of a, another version of Fat City. And the early years were really crazy and uh, and a lot of fun and really stressful and <laughs> uh, just uh, really difficult. But for some reason, it's like very romantically the best time. That was um, independent fabrication was at least sort of like a worker owned cooperative thing and i think you wrote a little bit about that was something that you were particularly interested in it didn't really end up feeling that much like that democratic or that uh, like it, it didn't feel like it had the format you really wanted uh was that your idea alone or was it uh, did everybody like that idea oh yeah no everybody liked that idea because we felt like oh uh, we've we've gotten uh you know we didn't like the way we were treated at that city and we didn't want to work for somebody else, but we wanted to be, to do it as a group. And I think there was some other inspiration possibly from maybe Burley or, um, uh, there was some inspiration to make us think that way and, uh, you know, other employee owned companies. So we've looked into it and, you know, so there's cooperatives and, and we decided to go with employee owned. So it's not, equal you know it's it's something you'd have to be if as a new employee you'd have to be brought into it as a cooperative as a new employee you're you come in as an equal even if you don't know anything or have any investment so we decided to go with employee ownership which has you know a different amount of stock ownership and we base that off of sweat equity so how many hours you put in uh in the beginning of the you know the first year of the company before we finally you know made stock um and uh, which was separate from money investment. That's a whole other thing. That's just in the pile of of uh, debt. Um, yeah. you know, if you put money into it, you know, you would be last to get it if there was somebody put more money in before you. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah. So it was it, it was a good model. Uh, it was definitely democratic because I got outvoted all the time. <laughs> you know, my, my uncle, I remember he said one time, the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. Uh, <laughs> right. But like there's that. a lot of people warn about partnerships and group things. And my experience the last couple of years with my own business, you know, being able to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as you're okay with it. I mean, there's there's drawbacks too, yeah. but uh, there's benefits there, and uh, you know it's just kind of interesting. These different models have strengths and weaknesses. And... Yeah, yeah, it can work. Uh, it's just, um, and it did work for us. Like the, you know, one of the one of the good things about a group enterprise like that is that you get so much more better ideas. Yep. And and I was very resistant to that. You know, it's like oh, that's a stupid idea, but you know, it turned out to be a good one. And we argued a lot. Um, so that's the that's the bad part of it is you have to argue your points, and it, that can be very tiring. Yeah. Um, and but you, you definitely get a collective. Uh, you just you, you just get more ideas, and a lot of them are good. So um, or, or get proven to be good. So that that's the advantage. The disadvantage is that it could be slow. Process of changing your mind could be slow. Um, or making a decision, you know, that has to be voted and ratified and uh, accepted. So um, uh, it's just like with bike design. I tell this to just every single customer is that 
good design, it's all about, you know, compromising. And, you know, if you can build in the least amount of compromises, that's, uh, you know, that's how, that's how you get there to what you want, you know, that'll work for you. So, um, so it's kind of like that with, with working with other people too. And, uh, sometimes you got to compromise to get where you're going if you're working with other people. But if you're by yourself, the advantage of that is there's no arguing, there's no time lost. Uh, you come up with an idea and you just go for it. It might fail, but you just do it and fail as well, and you move on and do another one. Yeah. And, and you're completely satisfied. Uh, well, you're not completely satisfied, but you're <laughs> satisfied with the speed of uh, you know how things would happen. Yeah. Uh, or you have a vision. You know, I always had a vision of how things I wanted things. You know, I, I like. I like a style and aesthetic, and that plays a big part in the, the way I do things. And uh, I get an idea, and it's like I want to do that. I want it to look like this. And there's you know nobody to argue with you about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about something I mentioned in the Chris Chance interview is that I know there were a lot of people who worked at Fat City who went on to do other. Uh, sort of notable, high-profile things in the bike industry. I think I mentioned you. I know oh, Jeff, Jeff Buchholz, who does Sputnik Tool, was uh, involved at IndyFab and, and now makes great tools uh, for other yeah. frame builders like, like I do and has been doing it my whole life. <laughs> and we have uh, yeah. Ron Andrews at King Cage. And there's just... Uh, yeah. I always forget half of the people. There's so many people who were doing uh, stuff there that you worked with and you knew them and you know yourself who who went on to do other interesting things what was unique about that environment that attracted people who would uh persist in the bike industry and go on to do these other things did it, was it something about the company culture at uh Fat City that attracted people who wanted to do something or was it something about the culture that once people got there it inspired them to do something for themselves or was it just like a total coincidence that's a great question i I don't know. I think it's a combination of those things and maybe the timing. Uh, but I probably would boil it down to the, it was just passionate people that, that wanted to, you know, create something. Uh, some of it was, you know, happenstance. Uh, some of it was just born out of needing something that nobody else made. Uh, or an opportunity. So one of the, uh, the first, one of the first people to leave uh, during my time was Chris Eichelhart. He had been there a long time already, and he wanted to move back to Maine, where he's from. And he bought a house there and set up, you know, Eichelhart bicycles up there. And and that had come and gone many times over the years until he finally ended up in Portland and finally doing well. Um, that's you know he was one of the first, and then. After that was probably uh, Jeff Pedersen left and started TRP, which made titanium fasteners and rebuild kits for derailers and brakes and those sorts of things. And that became a huge business, mm-hmm. uh, machining like, all the titanium bits. Because that, that was during the titanium craze, you know. Yeah. So it was, Wait, you know, the, the, early 90s. the brand TRP that everybody, that's a household sort of bike shop, uh, brand, <laughs> that TRP or no? No, it, it was... Okay. <laughs> they had that name before. The gotcha. TRP, the the titanium bolt company doesn't exist anymore. So gotcha. okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and he and uh, Jeff had uh, told Chris like 
we need to start uh, making and selling titanium bolts. You know, we don't even have to make them. You just job them out to these screw machine shops and bam. And, but Chris wasn't interested. And so Jeff's like, I, I just can't pass this up. I'm going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's how he started. He, he had it, you know, you know, jobbed out to screw machine shops and then eventually bought his own machines and set up in Harvard, Mass. And was successful for quite a while until that kind of ran its course. And so it's one thing about products is that, um, you know, you, you make something that's great for the time because nobody can get it. And then, it, you know, it sort of its usefulness runs out, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like making a, you know, 80 millimeter, you know, suspension fork, travel suspension fork. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> you going to make one longer? Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? You're not around anymore. You yeah. know, it's just kind of something like that, you know, sort of. So the titanium bolt thing kind of had its, had its time. Uh, but the other things that came out were Janeware. Jane uh, was a bookkeeper there, and she made her own clothing out of uh, fleece from Marston Mills. It was like a four-way stretch fleece. So she made tights and hats, and everybody had funky hats at that time. And then uh, Ron Andrews, his story is really great because he, uh, uh, you know, is King Cage, super successful, great guy. I love him to death. Yeah. And uh, really creative force at that city, fantastic bike rider, and uh, just total natural, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, he was one of the first ones to take me in the woods here, which was great. Super nice. And uh, so he, he was hanging out over at One Off Titanium, which uh, was Mike Osberger's shop that came out of, he worked at Bat City, helped start Merlin, and started his own place, One Off Titanium. And he was over there near IF uh, in the Joy Street Artist Studios, where his wife had a space. And he was making these One Off Titanium bikes, uh, a very interesting you know, construction, all these sleeves and uh, you know, sleeve fit to make it butted. And somebody called him and said, I want a titanium water ball cage. And he's like, that's ridiculous. And, <laughs> and uh, but Ron was there at a shop and says, I'll make it. So he made all of those benders. I'm sure you've seen his bending operation at the shows. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so it's very, uh, you know, Rube Goldberg kind of little fixtures and it's mm-hmm. beautiful. And so he made all the stuff, figured it all out and made a titanium water bottle cage and was making it at Mike's shop, and it just went nuts. People, titanium bottle cage, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard of. And <laughs> so that became King Cage, and then eventually came out with a stainless steel model and set up his own little shop. Uh, and that's my favorite, you know. Uh, yeah, and they moved and to Durango at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his... Uh, Wife wanted to really get out of the Boston area. She hated it here and uh, wanted to move to Durango because I think maybe she might have had lived there at some point. And uh, so they moved to Durango and uh, took King Cage because now that, that's the nice thing about creating your own business. It's like, well, I don't have to live here anymore. Yeah. You know, creating your own business, it's not reliant on, you know, a location except UPS. And yeah. uh, apparently UPS can get into the mountains there because it worked out for them. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, it just, it just, it was very successful and it allowed them to, you know, buy a, a frame house and build extensions and 
continue on. So uh, that's a very good success story there. Yeah. And I had uh, Eric from Myth Cycles was a guest. I don't know if you listened to that episode, but he... Well, no, I'm, I'm working my way up <laughs> to that one. That was like, I'm, I'm, I was thinking that was going to be one of the next ones. Yeah, well, he worked with Ron for a long time, and he he I think he said something like, you know, I learned everything I know from Ron or something to that effect, and uh, it was cool in that interview getting to learn a little bit more about, you know, what that shop was like and, and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I Ron asked, was really good. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I asked Ron to be on the podcast, and I just haven't haven't made it line up yet or happen yet, but uh, I can't wait to get him on. I, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to get yeah, him Yeah, he's got a lot of great stories. He's a, <laughs> he's a really funny guy. And uh, a real visionary. So when he was at Fat City, he was uh, like the tool maker. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but at that time, he's really good at making stuff now. But at that time, he was really good at coming up with ideas, but not great about you know, machining them. He wasn't a machinist. So, you know, things were a little janky. You got to shim stuff. And, you know, there's always something a little weird about it. But he was really good at coming up with ideas, and uh, and of course that got better over time. And then he started making tools. When he left Fat City, uh, he kind of had a little tool company. Didn't really have a name, but you know he would make stuff for people, little benders and um, other fixtures and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 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 that I think that's when the water bubble cage uh, finally you know got connected and that took off. Yeah. Um, well, he'd also uh, had done some work for Ibis, so he was one of the pro racers for Fat City, and that was one of the successes, successes of Fat City is they had a in-house professional mountain bike racing team, and that included Mike Key, that was the guy that made the Yo Eddie character, and Bob Falk, and Ron, and uh, then this guy that didn't work there, uh, um, I can't remember. There was Mike Ramponi. Uh, so there was like these four or four guys, really good pro racers, really down to earth and fun. And back then there was lots more, you know, mountain bike races and it was always fat chance. One, two, three, you know? Wow. And so, uh, they were, you know, the, the three of them were just real naturals and, uh, uh, particularly Mike and Ron. And so that really helped. Fat City be it's you know one one of the things that helped it be a, you know a real successful company in the volume because uh, they had the in-house racing team and so and uh, so Ron would often go to the West Coast and race for Fat City and he would work at Ibis hmm. and so it was like this cross pollination thing <laughs> yeah so he made some tools for Ibis and raced out there and uh, and. Uh, so, so that's kind of how Ron, you know, got more of his tooling ex- experience. It's just, you know, people needed something, and he'd come up with an idea. Yeah. And uh, it, and it, you know, shows in the in in the bottle cage tooling that he has at the, at the trade show. It's just so fun to watch. You know, I don't remember who now, but somebody I was interviewing on the podcast made a reference to you know back in the old Fat City days having you know, all these dedicated milling machines for all the different operations set up, you know, it's common sort of workflow for a small bike factory. And they said, they used the words, they said that, you know, like having a fixture literally welded to the table. Um, Did that ever happen? (laughs) I mean, those are cast iron. You can't really, like, it wasn't actually literally welded, right? (laughs) No, I think that they're probably, whoever said the story was probably referring to Gary Helfrich when he 
moved across the parking lot and started Merlin is that he needed to bolt a vice to a table uh-huh. and ended up like, you know, like brazing it or welding it to the table because he didn't have any bolts. <laughs> and it's not he's, move kind of a so he's a lovable lunatic, so I could. I wasn't there when that happened, but I'd heard that story before. I see. Yeah. So, uh, but no, that did not happen at that city. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, but there were, you know, the, we did have dedicated tooling, and it was pretty good. Uh, and we, and this is you know backing up to Fat City, but it's, it's hard to not talk about it. But yeah, uh, you know, we would. Our goal was to make forty frames a week didn't always make it but they would make 40 frames of the same size wow because the the this you know single piece flow just wasn't in our minds you know it just it was like ah that's too hard you know it's it's the two cutting machinery uh did not have a ruler on it you know it didn't have a the backstop set up like you would see now like on a sputnik tube cutter Mm -hmm. you know it just really didn't exist so you kind of uh set the jig up the jig was a little janky and, you know, when I got there, they would, you know, have, you know, we had five sizes of Wicked, and you'd have some main triangle templates hanging up in the ceiling, and you'd grab, you know, the 16 and sort of hammer into the jig and take it out, you know, hold, you know, they get all the tube holders in place, take it out, and cut the tubes to fit. And so if you're cutting a down tube, you would just cut it down tube, keep cutting it until it fits, and then cut 40 of them. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of part of the, the yeah. process. So because, of, you know, because the setup is such a chore, you need to make a large batch size to make it worth the setup. Yeah. And then you go five weeks or whatever it is between making the same thing. Yeah, except, you know, we'd be going for 40, but it would be 38 because while they were cutting the 39th tube, it, you know, the, the thing vibrated and, and oh, now the tube's too short or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, we'll save that, and uh, so. But it was also it's just it was just the mentality. You got to make lots of bikes, and that's the best way to do it. Even though, really, in reality, and people discovered this later, particularly with companies like Seven, is that uh, it, you don't really gain any efficiency by batching. Yeah, because the only the only spot that it's an advantage is in the machining area where you're cutting the tubes. After that, it, it's a one-off handmade bike. You can't speed it up any faster, uh, with exception of powder coating. Maybe you could, you know, if that's all you did is powder coat, you know, red on ten yeah. frames. You know, maybe uh, even then, that's not really helping that much. But you know, if it's welding, it's aligning, it's finish work and brazing and cleaning, it's all one at a time. So once people developed better tube cutting systems and better fixtures that you know had rollers on the guides and so and rulers <laughs> mm-hmm. that were accurate you know you didn't have to use a protractor or anything uh and that you know really sped things up so you could do the single piece flow and fill orders which is the most important thing to do yeah and you know so at fat city we'd make 40 of all these sizes tack them they'd have these huge tacking parties at night and you know fill up the racks and then the welders would just have, you know, you just pick a frame off the ceiling and they would, and then the salespeople would just sell what was available. 
And even in the paint department, when I got there in the paint department, we'd have primed frames hanging on the racks. So you, you just take the stock frames, unsold, prime them, hang them on the racks, and then uh, you could reactivate the primer just by sanding it. So you'd prime it. And this is back with lead-based primer. Awesome stuff. Can't get it anymore. So wow. uh, you, you just hang it up on the rack. Months later, uh, you just sand it, and you're ready to go. And if it was a problem, you could you know, throw a, a thin coat of primer on it to start it over. And so you could just pull from the rack and paint it. So once it's painted, then, yeah, you better hope it's sold. <laughs> so, so you learned a lot about manufacturing through those years at Fat City, and so did everybody else. And when you started IndyFab and through the years that you were working with IndyFab, I imagine you took some lessons about how to be a little bit smarter about inventory and batches and all these things, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, for me personally, I, you know, I knew how to paint and I knew how, knew how to weld. But, you know, it took me years to get to where I was machining and doing the whole process. Uh, and again, it was partly because IF was sort of like a culture like Fat City where uh, they wouldn't show me you know, how to cut tubes. I guess they were afraid I would leave, which I guess is true. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so that took me a long time. But it is, as the company, though, we unfortunately carried a lot of baggage. We were also batching giant giant batches of frames. So I think our goal was, you know, 40 a month. So we would do 10 of one size, which, of course, ended up being nine because we'd fuck one of them up. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, put the, put the short tube, the, you know, pile of short tubes, to, to use later. And so we were still batching and it was partly because our tube cutting system was inefficient. Uh, the tacking picture was inefficient and that's, that's what drove Jeff Buckholtz to make Sputnik tools. Yeah. I, I was going to ask. So, so, you know, for one, he wanted to be the tool maker. So at Fat City, he was the fork maker and he wanted to be the tool maker, but you know, Chris was like, nah, 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 you know, just make forks. So I'm sure that, you know, burnt Jeff and he was like, well, I, you know, I want to be a tool maker. I can do it. And so when we started IF, that was his opportunity to be a tool maker. It was my opportunity to become a welder because uh, they didn't want me to weld. So when we started IF, they said, you're the painter. And uh, we had a welder and she quit. Like she welded maybe four frames and it, this was like six months later, of, you know, after trying to get the company started and, you know, She's like, I got two kids. I need to get a job. I can see where this is going. And uh, so she left, and I said, I can weld. And I'm like, no, you can't. And so I just did it. I just, I just did it anyway, you know, and uh, we were making some chain state sub-assemblies, and I welded some, and Lloyd was like, well, I guess you can weld. I'm like, yes, I can. And uh, so I just took it over and did it, and um, I'm glad that I did. Because yeah. that's what I wanted to do. So I was very passionate. You know, I was a very passionate person. So I wanted to be the best painter. Kind of took that to its uh, nth degree, and then I wanted to be the best welder ever. So every day, every puddle was uh, I was completely focused on that. And some people get really bored with that. So Jeff, he's like, I, I don't see how you weld. It's so fucking boring. You know, I need to design tools, and I totally understand that. But I just, I was, I was like, yeah, I get it, but. I just want to weld. I want to be a welder. Yeah. And uh, I you know, wanted to be a bench welder and to do it over and over. And 
that's what I did. And so IF was a great opportunity for me to get really good at welding. So, you know, in our first nine months, you know, I welded about 90 frames. And uh, at that time, we weren't making forks. We just made mountain bikes with a suspension fork. Mm-hmm. And because uh, Rock Chalk, you know, came with saving the day. And, and, of course, I was painting them all and shipping them. And so, you know, help, I did, was wearing a lot more hats. And uh, I got more involved with, you know, writing the catalog copy and uh, getting the photographs done. I didn't take them, but, you know, I got that arranged. But anyway, I was welding a lot and getting that bench time in. And then, then it was soon I was doing, you know, 300 a year and then more, you know, and at some point it was hard to count because I was maybe only welding main triangles or doing forks. You know, there was a lot of bouncing around and we had some other welders working for us. And so, um, or I was doing finish welding and they were doing main triangles. So there became a time where I I couldn't count how many frames I was doing, but it was a lot and Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, 10 hour days, like just welding frames. And uh, it was dependent on uh, the the machining department making enough frames for me to do. So it's like, well, I'd come in in the morning, no frames, a bunch of tubes, you know, flying around the machining area. It's like, ah, damn. And so I said, well, I got a lot of, I got a lot of painting to do. I can ship, I can do all, there was always something to do. But then when the frames are ready, like, Hey, can you get on this? Like, okay, I'm on it. And you know, stay up late and, uh, work like crazy and go get a burrito and come back, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so that was, you know, it was good. Um, but I did start to have a lot of physical problems, uh, with my shoulder because of, uh, well, you know, when you work 60 or 80 hours a week, uh, and painting was causing me a lot of stress because I was painting forks the wrong way. Like the way I'd learned is you, you just hold the fork in front of you and spray it. Oh yeah. Um, it will, you know, so, uh, and you're rotating your shoulder, you know, your wrist all the time. So it was get going to my shoulder and I was wearing a messenger bag all the time. Cause that was the cool thing to do. And mm-hmm. that was, re- that was wrecking me. And, uh, um, so that, it, that all went away when I started ant. So <laughs> all the stress and all the ergonomic issues would working that many hours and doing those repetitive movements. Um, that all went away when I finally got a live-in art studio to start Ant. I, In your story on your website, I was reading part of what kicked that into motion. You, you started IndieFab and you were working with these other people and it was great in some ways, but it was really exhausting and these other problems. And then you saw Simon Firth riding a uh, you know, from he was working at Belinky Cycle Works, and he was riding a cargo bike at some event or trade show or something. And then you talked to him, and it that was part of the catalyst that that really made you uh, want to start yeah. your own thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it really was. And I wanted to, but I you know didn't really have a clear vision. I was definitely into commuter bikes, and I built some at IF and. Um, and, but when I went, yeah, I went down to the core stage professional championships in Philadelphia and, uh, I saw Simon of Hannaford mm-hmm. cycles. He had worked for Blinky at the time. Yeah. He had the cargo bike. Yeah. He had a cargo bike and it had a, a hibachi on the front and a watermelon. 
And I was like, wow, man, that's so cool. So I pushed through the crowd and said, hey, man, I really like your bike. And, he's, and then we found out we were both frame builders. And I was like, hey. And she's like, come up to Lemon Hill. That's where the party's going on. And we watched the race from there. And I went up there and had a great time. And I just, you know, I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to make commuter bikes and cargo bikes. Because that was um, always important to you as part of why bicycles were like that you were saying yeah. like as a young person you didn't get into it for racing and performance you liked touring and you liked the uh, alternative needs transportation element of it yeah yeah so i was a hippie kid and you know i was into environmentalism and uh and all that sort of thing and commuted everywhere i commuted for years uh through all the weather moved to boston rode all winter you know mm-hmm. um those sorts of things. I liked fenders and uh, racks and bags and those sorts of, and those types of bikes. And they just weren't available. And it's particularly at that time, you know, late nineties, it was, you'd go to the bike shop, uh, which I would work at occasionally to get some extra bucks on the side. And it was just full of these hybrid bikes that were so ugly, mm-hmm. uh, particularly at that time, they, you know, really these stubby stems and, all these plastic parts and they had tons of toe overlap, which was weird. And, uh, they just weren't very good bikes. And then the parts, it was kind of a moment where the components were really crappy too. And, uh, I just thought that's people's impression of a bike. And, uh, I mean, granted they were, you know, $200 bikes, uh, and that's what you get. But I just felt like, I thought maybe if I could make something that looked, and functioned a lot better that these big companies would copy me and make my bike as the cheap version. <laughs> and that and, would be uh, a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, because it's you... not my business, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not going to make those cheap bikes. So it wouldn't really, I thought it wouldn't really take away from me. It did, but, uh, in the end and, uh, cause companies like Linus came out, it's like, well, look at that. That's the import ant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 800 bucks and, you know, pretty good bike. And, uh, but yeah, that was my intention. I was, you know, it was more, I was in that kind of big picture thinking, uh, but yet I thought that I could sell enough to survive and, and make it. And, uh, so I, I found this studio through a friend. It was like a little mill building and it had live-in studios. So I had a, I had this room that was my living space, just a giant room with a kitchen in it, mm-hmm. huge windows. I was on like a third floor and uh, had a freight elevator that I had limited access to, but it was enough to, to get a few machines up. And then I had another long skinny room that was, you know, maybe uh, 200 square feet, maybe less. And mm-hmm. uh, it also had one of those giant windows and had a bathroom and I had a couple other storage spaces. So once I was in there, I was living alone, which helped, uh, and I was single at that moment, and so I could really just dedicate a lot of time to getting set up, and so I was working at IF full-time, and then setting up my shop in the studio, and then started making bikes. Like, the first ant I built was a three-wheel bike, um, a front platform-type cargo bike. Mm-hmm. It was really simple. You know, the, the, it had like wheelbarrow wheels for the front, you know, no brakes. And uh, I made it for a friend of mine, but she was terrified of it. 
and uh, she was going to use it like as an art cart to sell art, you know. And we were trading for a painting, and she wrote it, and she was like, "Ah, it's a little scary on the downhills." I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's I'm making it, you know, it's kind of essentially free. Okay, the bike's free. Let me put it that uh-huh. way. And uh, but she didn't like it. I took it back. I wrote it for a few months, and like me and my roommate who also worked at IF were like riding around. Well, he was my roommate before I got the studio, but anyway, uh. He'd sit on the front, and we were riding around. I'd go up on two wheels, you know, and he was like monkey on the side. And uh, so it was kind of fun, and I used it at some events because uh, he says you do all these events with bikes, not bombs. And and uh, But then eventually I chopped it up. It's like, ah, it was a failure. So I chopped it up, and then the next ant was the frontal load on to me, which is the front-end cargo bike that was like the one I'd seen at Blinky. And... I copied a version of a German bike from this magazine, uh, not a magazine, a book called Bike Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. And it was a, something that would come out every year. It was a very ins- inspirational uh, periodical that I loved. I had all the issues. There were about six of them. And it had all these European bikes, uh, cargo bikes and trikes and recumbents and a few commuter bikes. That was really inspirational to me. And... I saw this cargo bike, and I said, wow, that thing is really cool. I just love the way it looks. And so it said it was a 54 in the description. And so I just kind of, you know, essentially just put my fingers up to it. So, well, it's about that long. And uh, and so I just copied it from Vision, you know. Wow. And I made this giant fixture out of 8020 that was like six feet long and would hold all the tubes like a tandem sort of. Mm-hmm. And so I could make, make the cargo bike and I made it one for myself and I just nailed it accidentally, completely, you know, by accident that it handled great. I was, I loved the thing. And, uh, then I made some, some of those bikes for red bones barbecue so they could do delivery. Cause I was friends with them kind of helped that help red bones turn into a bike hub. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became friends with the owner and, and he wanted to do bike delivery and a bunch of other bike related things. And so I built some cargo bikes for them again, not for free, but you know, it feels like free. <laughs> uh, and so I did a lot of work like that. You know, I built in the beginning, I was working at IF and I was making frames in my little shop and they were pretty basic. Uh, and, they were, you know, geared to the commuter market, um, and I was building for friends and family and uh, other local people. So it was all local. You know, I wasn't known. I didn't advertise. It was just a side project, uh, and it's part time. I did that for a year and a half as part time, and and I was still building my tooling. So I would cut the tubes at IF, bring them home and tack it and weld it and align it and then take it back to IF and paint it. So I was, uh, that was helpful. Um, and that was, and I started making a lot of fixed gears cause at that time, you know, I was into fixed gears and I, that's all I rode. And, um, probably cause I was cheap, you know, it's a, it's a great inexpensive way to have a good bike yeah. and not have to, not have to fix it or replace anything. And, uh, and then that's when I came up with the idea with the front rack because, uh, like I said, my shoulder was hurting like crazy. I was having all these problems, and I wanted to get the messenger, back off, messenger bag off my back. So I 
wanted to make a front rack, and I had been inspired uh, partly by the Paul's uh, flatbed that was out at that time, but I didn't really like the way it looked. Uh, but it was cool, you know, it was a nice rack. And But I didn't like the way it attached to the headset, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of ungraceful. And I'd seen this picture of a, I think it was a Rene Hearst uh, transportable bike. So it broke in two, like an SNS bike. Mm-hmm. And it was a coaster brake and three speed. The shifter was on the seat stay and it had a front rack. And I thought it was rounded. So I made this rounded rack that I called the D-rack. And then later I, I made the rack and I was, wow, I really like this. And I could strap my messenger bag to the front. And then I saw the photo that had inspired me years later. And I was like, oh, wait, it's rectangle. It's not round. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it was, all, it was all based on a memory, but it turned into a happy accident. So I could actually say, you know, even though I was inspired by, inspired by something else and slightly copied it, I sort of made it my own. Yeah. And that gave me an advantage. So, uh, to, for selling. So that was kind of helped me become Ant. And I should back up too, is that one of the reasons IF was successful in creating itself is we had a story to sell. And I know this would come later in the, in the conversation that you would ask me, you know, what, uh, would you, what advice you would give to people that wanted to get into this Yeah. and you know, really where the rubber meets the road. If you have sales, you've got a business and the way that we got sales at Fat City is that we had that culture that people wanted a piece of. You know, we had a, you know, we had a, uh, a rocket, and somebody wanted to tie their red wagon to it, and uh, and so we carried that into IF because we had a story to sell. Whether it was true or not, you know, we kind of embellished maybe, but our story was we got disc, they left us behind, and we're gonna make a company anyway and it's going to be employee owned and you know we had a, a whole we really believed it but you know it it's it's a story it's something people can uh associate with and say yeah i want to be a part of that mm-hmm. i'm going to buy their bike so that really helps if you have a story there are other methods that was our method and and it was it was organic. It wasn't like we had a meeting and said, this is what we're going to do. And we had a lot of meetings about the name, but we didn't have uh, a meeting about, you know, how we were going to attract people. Uh, that was sort of just accidental based on our passion. But that, you know, so that's how I carried in the ant. My story was uh, I've you know, been in the high-end industry all, most of my life, and I wanted to make bikes that were you know, stylish, uh, useful bikes that fit and, uh, um, and also, you know, the cargo bikes, uh, but it was mostly the light roadster, you know, bike was probably what I was most interested in. And, uh, you know, just had that right balance of aesthetic and function and also that they were black. So I had been a professional painter for, uh, 12 or 15 years. I forget. I have to add it up, but somewhere around there. And mm-hmm. I was really sick. Of, I was really sick of custom paint. You know, I was, I didn't want to hear about the flowers that you wanted painted on and, and how you're up, how you're upset that it got shipped, you know? Yeah. And, and that, you know, your expensive paint job is, you know, is coming off or, or that it wasn't right. You know, mm-hmm. I was just sick. Of, I was sick of custom paint and I'd kind of done everything that I could do. You know, I, I, 
had done all these crazy paint jobs based on themes and techniques and uh i laid down a clear coat as glossy as i could ever do it and you know all the things that i wanted to accomplish were done and so when i started ant i've uh, for when i like black bikes and so i i just said black only mm-hmm. so for like the first two years it was black only and the other part of that is i wanted them powder coated and the powder coater i used was an industrial place that that city had used in the 80s and uh, they had batch pricing. So four bikes was the same as one bike. Wow. But they needed to be the same color. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And their quality was rough, but man, their adhesion was the best ever, still is. Uh, I don't use them anymore because they just it's just too lumpy. Mm-hmm. But man, that stuff was the toughest. so hard to get off if you had to fix anything. And uh, so... I did that for a few years and eventually it's like I lightened up and people kept asking for different colors and, you know, it cost more money. So I had to raise my prices because when I came out, my bike, my frame and fork was really reasonable. It was like a thousand bucks for mm-hmm. a frame and fork. And, but I didn't do any finish work. It's all TIG welded. And that's what I was known for. You know, I, I'd set out to be, you know, in my mind, you know, the greatest steel TIG welder. And I really tried hard to do it. And at that time, there weren't really a lot of people doing a very good job at it. Uh, and you know, when I started at Fat City, I, I, I thought TIG welding was, you know, you don't want to do that, you know, and that's BMX bikes. And that's when they turned me on. It's like, no, I can look nice and, uh, and be super strong. So that was my thing. I TIG welded everything. I even TIG welded the bottle mounts on. I didn't want to braze anything because I didn't want to clean any flux off. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the forks were straight bladed and I didn't do any finish work on the dropouts. Um, which is something I learned, you know, kind of at Fat City. It's like, well, you know, don't make a big blob, you know, do it smooth, and you don't, then now you don't have to grind it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so there's no finish work, and that. But eventually, over time, uh, people wanted different things. So they said, well, I don't want to ride a fixed gear. I want a single speed. So oh, no problem. I want bigger tires and cantilevers. Well, okay, because I did everything side pull, and uh, and then I, you know. Then they wanted internal gear hubs and chain guards and kickstands and dynamo lights and a rear rack and uh, and then then eight speed hubs. Yeah. And then roll offs and then you know so I built lots of roll off bikes. So just it just developed over time into a a bigger, longer, lower, heavier bike with more stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually somebody said, "Yeah, you know, I really love what you're doing, but you know I, I just can't deal with the straight fork." Uh, I'll be like, well, you know, it's, it's, it rides great. It's you know, really no difference. It's just it's more about the material and the thickness and the strength of the tubes and how long they are and less to do with that curve, but I understand. I, I like curved forks, too. It's just I don't have a bender, and I don't know how to do it. I'm not a brazer. Uh, I mean, I, I did know how to braze cable guides and, you know, bits and pieces, but I, uh, I didn't know how to do, you know, lugs or fillet braze or fork crown. So I said, well, I guess I got to make fork, you know, braze crown forks and I got to buy a bender and I, maybe I should make a bigger, better jig and, you know, one that's better for brazing and then the one I had set up for TIG tacking. And man, that was tough. So the first fork I brazed is like, man, when is this going to get hot? I can't get it hot enough because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was you know, brazing the steer into the uh, fork crown, 
and uh, it just takes so long because when you're a TIG welder, you just push the pedal and you're welding. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, I think that's one of the problems when people go from brazing to welding. They're welding really slow and waiting for it to get hot. It's like, no, push the foot pedal down and then move. Yeah. And don't hang around. It's going to get hot. You only want it hot where you want it welded. <laughs> Not everywhere else. Mm-hmm. But with brazing, it's like, well, it's all going to be hot just right. So, you know, I, I tried that. I knew that. You know, I, I technically knew how to braze. I just didn't do it. So I didn't have practice. You know, I didn't work at Waterford. Uh, you know, if I, if I grew up at a place like Waterford or one of those other lug shops, that's, you know, yeah. That would have that would have been ingrained in me. So it took a long time to learn how to braise, and forks really taught me how to braise uh, heavier things and get better at it. And it's at some point, you know, like a year later, is finally there's an aha moment. It's like, oh, okay, now it's hot, <laughs> and uh, now it flows. And um, and then that went on. I started braising more stuff, and then I came up with my dual plate fork crown and. Um, some things developed the bike and the style started making stems. And of course I was making front and rear racks for a long time. And then I started making my own chain guards and pedal cages and chain rings. Well, I didn't make the chain rings, but they, you know, were made for me. And so I kind of started to develop, you know, the style of the bike started to, to develop and I always had sales. So I should say, I think you were going to ask me about that, you know, that it would be difficult to sell a commuter bike, but it actually came kind of easy. Uh, hmm. So in the beginning, it came easy, uh, particularly since I was working part-time. Uh, I think I built 35 bikes in that first year and a half doing it part-time. Mm-hmm. And and it, it came easy because I was experienced, you know. It's like I knew what to do. It didn't need to be explained. I was just making bikes, just like I did, just like the thousands we made at IF. And uh, it's no different. It's just extra. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that easy. And... Then when I, uh, as, as I, I went on, you know, I had to learn more things and it got more complicated. And the, and the sales uh, were easy in the beginning. And then when I finally cut the cord and quit IF and had my live, website go live, uh, that was December, uh, January 2003, you know, it was kind of laid out. I sort of had a plan. I had a... The website was built. I had good photography, and which always bugged me about the IF website. It's like show the welds, you know. It's like show close-ups, you know. Show it needs to be better photography. So I, you know, hired a friend of mine. He shot a bunch of photos in medium format, you know, big camera and nice. outdoors. And but it was difficult because you had to scan all the photos and then digitize yeah. them. That went on for years uh, until I finally figured out to buy a digital camera <laughs> and do, do it myself. So, uh, but, you know, I had a nice website, went live. And the first thing I did is I just started, I put out a press release. I, you know, to Bicycle Retailer and all the other magazines, uh, you know, just faxed it to everybody. Then I um, started advertising in the, uh, a bunch of zines and, Dirt Rag magazine, and we had a local magazine in Boston called The Ride, which was a really good local publication, and that used to be more common. All mm-hmm. the regions had a paper magazine, you know, slash newspaper slash magazine. And so I 
started spending money to advertise and do events. So I would do things with Bikes Not Bombs and Red Bones. We had a bike party. And uh, so I definitely promoted myself quite a bit. Um, I would have open house. Uh, so Boston is a very culture-driven area, so we have a lot of art and music. And so we have open studios in a bunch of the cities. But back then, it was pretty much just uh, the South End and Boston and Somerville had open studios. And it didn't really, you know, the other towns didn't really have it yet. And maybe Waltham. And so Somerville had a, a art mill that had its own open studios. And then Somerville started having its, the whole town would be open. So all the artists would open their houses and their studios to uh, uh, take part. And so I started doing that because I was in an art building. Yep. And that, I got sales out of that. People would come in and it's like, wow, I didn't know you could make a bike and, you know, never heard of this. And I got business out of that. And a lot of, uh, there's a lot of times when you're promoting yourself, you don't get any sales, but you get that recognition, not recognition, but, uh, people start to know you. Yeah. You and make so impressions. Did yeah. You make an impression. You're like, Oh, have you ever heard of that guy? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I've heard of him. And you know, <laughs> just enough to say that exists. And, uh, so that doing all those combinations of things, uh, helped get that. And then I moved out of the, I, I met my current wife, uh, we, Betsy, we've been together for 19 years now. And I, you know, went out to where she lived and set up in a mill building out there in a small town. And that's when things really kind of took off. But I have to say, when I moved out there, I did not have any orders. So I spent all my money moving out to this shop and I just quit my, I hadn't just quit my job. It was like a year and a half later. So I, it was moving along, but it was bike to bike, you know, two bikes, three bikes, you know, the orders were coming in. But when I moved at that moment, so I had a good year and a half of ant all my, by myself in the art building. And when I went to move and sort of go a little more big time is I, you know, I, the orders went down and I spent all my money and I moved into the space and I'm sitting there with my thumb up my ass. Like, what am I going to do now? And phone ring. You know, mm -hmm. oh, hey, oh, think about getting one of your light loaders. That's great. Send a deposit and boom. And then just started, you know, that happened over and over. It's like, well, what am I going to do? And the phone would ring. What am I going to do? And the phone would ring. And it just kept happening. Uh, and, that, you know, again, I was promoting myself, but, you know, it just started to roll. And this was early in the, the next handmade bike boom. So I was, you know, it was... I was unique and I had a, there wasn't a lot of competition. Uh, it was a fortunate time. I was very fortunate to sort of land in that moment. And then when uh, NABS came about, I um, was doing pretty well. You know, I was busy uh, and I, you know, I bought some more tools and that was just an obsession of mine or used to be an obsession obsession. So besides being a workaholic, which is something I have to control, uh, uh, buying machine tools that I know nothing about and refurbishing and selling, uh, for a loss, uh, is another hobby. And so, uh, I, yeah, I'm one of those people that I buy high and sell low. It's just, it's a problem I have. And, uh, -huh. uh so I, uh, but I learned a lot. And so anyway, uh, Nat, Don Walker got in touch with me and was like, I don't know who this guy is. And 
and he's, you know, he's wanted to put on the show. I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool, but, uh, you know, it was in Houston and I'm from Texas. I'm like, I, I don't want to go to Houston. Why don't you have it in Austin? And, uh, he's like, nah, it's going to be in Houston at a hotel. And so it wasn't, didn't sound very good to me. I mean, I did want to go, but I was busy and, um, I thought, I thought, yeah, I could fit it into, you know, a family visit, but it's like Houston, six hours from Fort Worth. It's, you know, it's a big area. And, uh, so I didn't go, but then the next year, um, I was sort of friends with Sasha over at Vanilla and he called me up and said, I want you to come to the NABs in San Jose. I really, you know, we need some different types of bikes there. And I think he'd be a really good fit. And he was just really, you know, wanted he was one of those people, marketing genius, that knew that this would be good. Mm-hmm. And he he was at the first show, and even though it was rinky-dink and whatnot, it had a success. Uh, and he knew that this was this was the way to promote all of us. And so I said, okay, I, I'm going to do it. And I don't know how, but I don't really have the money. So I... I started doing some fundraising. I sold my cargo bike, which I really was sad to do, but I, you know, sold it for a song to get some cash mm-hmm. and just tried to, I said, well, we'll do it cheaply. And of course that, that's famous last words. So I, uh, <laughs> like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, Betsy will come with me. She's great. She, you know, she's very, very supportive. She loves all this stuff. And, and she loves to do trade shows. You know, she used to be in college admissions and very cheery person. And so she's a great partner to have. And, uh, so she was all into it. It's like, yeah, we can get hats and socks and, you know, I'll make the backdrop. And, and, uh, so we had a lot of fun getting ready, ready, ready for it. And then I got this crazy idea. I said, but there's something I've always wanted to do. And I've always wanted to make a wood bike with copper plated lugs. And, I, for years, you know, cause I used to, you know, there was this woodworker nearby and, and it was at the near IF and we were friends and I'd sold him one of my bikes. And he, so it kind of got me thinking about wood and, and, uh, I'd seen a copper plated bike in the bike encyclopedia. Uh, it was made by that Dutch furniture maker. And, uh, so anyway, I said, I'm going to do it. So it's going to have fruit of leaves. It's going to be fantastic so i uh and it was partly inspired by also this antique bike that was made in massachusetts um and so i spent like a couple of months building this bike and uh you know wood wood turned wood uh main frame uh, all the tubes were or I can't call them tubes they're solid but you know wood where the tubes would be Holy cow. you know fruitily cut uh I sent you a link to it. So it's at the bottom of the last links I sent you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I made the handlebars and the stem as a combo. And I made a spoon break and I had these wood rims that were like brand new, new old stock, uh, track rims. And, yeah. uh, I made the, I, I didn't make the crank, but I sort of, I took a antique crank and modified it to take my chain ring and made, I hand cut the pedal cages out of brass and, Got fillwood hubs, copper plated. Had them send send them to me without the bearings pressed in. <clears throat> so everything was copper plated. Wow. And uh, I learned a lot about how I suck at finishing. 
And uh, if you're going to if you're going to chrome plate something, man, it's uh, you know copper goes before chrome. But uh, it, you got the pushrod uh, front brake. Yeah, pushrod front brake. Is that a fixie yeah. hub on the back? Fixie hub on the back, and uh, it it looked beautiful, and it rode like a noodle. Oh man! So, so it was an art. It was an art bike, and uh, so, but it had the desired effect. I, for one, I was extremely satisfied with the process. You know, I just killed myself making this thing, and uh, it looked really cool. You know, it just it just had the presence, and but I also brought uh, built two other bikes to take to the show. I think I took a truss bike, which I was known for, and uh, something else, and. Uh, and then on top of that, Don calls me and says, I want you to make the trophy for best in show. <laughs> and I'm wow. like, what? I, I, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to stay alive and I'm spinning on, I'm, I'm taking it in the throat with money and, and uh, uh, come out to the show, you know, with plane tickets. And, and uh, so I said, okay. And he sent me like uh, a torch and a file and a dead torch. And, and I created the, trophy it sat there for a long time he's like hey he kept calling me so when's it gonna be done when's it gonna be done it's like ah soon and uh i hadn't any ideas because all my ideas were being poured into my bikes and the booth and uh so i whipped out the trophy and was like hey it's not too bad i like it and it's a little you know the nabs part a hand cut with a jeweler saw is kind of janky looking but uh, you know i'm not one of those guys that can carve out letters that, where they look perfect. Like there's some people, you know, yeah. like these paint job type people that can do that kind of stuff. I'm not one of those. So it very, looks very handmade, which I guess was appealing. And, you know, it's a hammered sheet of copper and I so, cut nabs out of it. So and I've so, seen that, but that's, that's the same trophy and that just gets passed around year to year. Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I never paid that and much so, attention to the trophy itself. I assumed there were like, somebody made a new one every year, but now that I'm looking at photos on the internet, I see, yeah, it is the same one every year. And that's yeah, the one you so made the, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Don was like, I want this to be like the, uh, Stanley cup. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, it's cool. I mean, I like the idea, but I was just so flat out busy and, uh, but I made it and everybody was very happy with it. Don was happy with it. And I came to the show with overly high expectations for my wood bike. And uh, it, it had the desired effect. I mean, it was a hit. I mean, people just would not stop coming, looking at it, and squeezing the brake. It's like that brake was like, yeah. oh my god, look! It's like a lever, and it pushes down on the tire. Oh my god! You, you know, know, if you bring <laughs> even just the most basic bike to a trade show and you have it in a booth, people still want to squeeze the spokes and pull the brake lever and stuff anyway. <laughs> but it, when it's such a um, novelty a push rod break, you know, they need to see it move. Uh, I'm sure that people yeah. could not keep their hands off that thing. Yeah. As I was constantly retightening it, it wasn't very well made. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was like, Oh God, that's kind of where I fail a lot. You know, I want to do something like Paul Brody, but it's mine's the janky version. <laughs> 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 so, uh, uh, so I, it, but it was, it was great. You know, the, the show was, it was funny because uh, so we get to San Jose and I plan to not spend any money. I'm like, you know, we're going to ship everything to Philwood and uh, we're just going to carry everything to the convention center. I, I was like, no, we can't do that. So I rented a van. So I kept piling all these costs. 
And, uh, you know, well, no, no, we're not going to stay with friends. We're going to go to the hotel at the host hotel, you know, so it's more and more money. And, uh, so I get the van, I'm the hit in town and the other guys are like, uh, it's like, Hey, can I get a ride? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, cargo van, get in the back. And, uh, so we, we go to the hotel, get set up, get the stuff from Philwood where the bikes were shipped and uncrate everything and then uh drive to the convention center and we pull up it's like big convention center you know windows modern I'm like oh man this is fantastic we've made it and i go trotting in and uh the, there's a kiosk with the information kiosk and i go to the lady hey i'm here for the and she oh actually i just go up and she goes you must be here for the bike show I'm like you know <laughs> it's like stamped on my forehead uh that was one of those weirdos and I'm like, yeah, yeah where do we load up? It's like, uh, you're around back. I'm like, oh, okay. So I drive around back, and we're not in the convention center. We're in an airplane hangar. Wow. It looks like a giant worm. It's one of those tents. It's like hard on the sides, you know? Mm-hmm. And it uh, looks like a circus. I'm like, I was completely deflated. And we, you know, and Don's there. I'm like, hey, Don. And we walk in and it's like the lighting is terrible, cement floors, nothing set up yet. And it's like, oh my God, this is horrible. There's like these vents, winds blowing. And and uh, so it was disappointed. But anyway, we set it, we find our booth and we're right by this giant vent. So I like take my cardboard boxes and like tape it over the vent because it was like blowing the curtains. And uh, it was just outside, you know, air just coming from the outside. Yeah. And But, but everybody set up their booths. And they got some lighting, sort of. And then suddenly it was like, this is awesome. This is great. Everything's fine. But it was it was a little funny at that point. And then the show got going, and it was fantastic. You know, it was it was a great outpouring of, of people from all around. And uh, lots of photos were being taken, which oddly, you know, Don Walker's like, no photos allowed. <laughs> and I said, are you... And I, ran to his booth like are you nuts i said this is that's how you you know get people interested in this you know he's yeah. like, well, i want people to come to the show and you know there's legalities and stuff and i said no 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 we've got to be on the internet we have to be on flickr all these people you know bloggers yeah. you want it and so i convinced him and uh he's like oh okay all right and uh so that that really was helping me a lot um was to and again it was the you know beginning time um, you know, even though the internet had been around for 10 years, it wasn't really, you know, it was really mm-hmm. the beginning of it and it was a huge boon. Uh, but I thought, you know, my bike was going to win, you know, but I saw Sasha's tricycle. It's like, man, this thing looks so nice. It's so fucking perfect. The finish work is just, it's like, man, my finishing is just horrible. It's, you know, it's file marks and scratches. And even though like I, I worked on it forever, uh, I just didn't have that uh, finesse and you know his tricycle and everything he made you know was just really really nice along with a lot of other people but you know the tricycle won the best in show which it deservingly did um, but I kind of hoped that you know I would go to the NABs I'd have this showpiece bike and you know Robin Williams was going to buy it <laughs> <laughs> you know for you know more money than I had spent making it. Uh, <laughs> and that didn't happen. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, but what did happen is that, uh, and this is where I'm fortunate over other builders, is that since I was unique, I was different, um, I had a story to sell, um, that I got in magazines. So every year I went to NABs, I didn't sell bikes. I never took orders, never follow up orders. Uh, but what I did is every year out of, you know, the hundred builders that were there or 150 builders that were there, uh, they would pick a few people to get into magazines and I was always one of them. Mm -hmm. And I'd have a full page, you know, picture. Wow. Because you were so yeah, remarkable. Was, Yours was so much different than, you know, a trade show that's exhibiting the custom and the unique. And, and you know, you can't get this at your average bike shop. And yours, yours did that. So it was worth magazine yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, the, I had the trust bike and the D-Rack and, some you know, some cargo bikes. And, um, well, the first year I didn't bring a cargo bike. And everybody was disappointed. It's like, well, you know, who's going to ship that? And... So, so it was very good and a lot of fun. So, and what was really fun is that, you know, that was back when the show was one thing and then the builders got to do their other thing at night. It wasn't this 24 seven thing that happens now. It's really tiring now. So back then you would do the show and then you'd go to the hotel and that's where all the builders were staying. And then you'd go to the bar or restaurant and that year they had a band with uh, Paul Sadoff and Brian Bayless and I forget the bass player. They were fucking awesome. It was so fun. We got really drunk, had a great time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then the next morning we were all eating breakfast together. It was buffet breakfast. There's a pile of bacon. It's, you know, it was great. We're in California, mm -hmm. you know, for me, you know, that was like, this is vacation. This is wonderland. Uh, you know, it was sunny, you know, everybody in San Jose is walking around, it's cold. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and uh, so it was just a lot of fun. And then also, you know, people glammed on my van. So uh, Richard Sox and Peter Weigel were like, uh, hey, uh, can we get a ride from you? I'm like, yeah. So we ended up going out to dinner a few times because yeah. uh, I had a van. <laughs> that, that's always kind of so that was fun. my experience with the trade shows is mostly that like you know you're on the show floor all day it can be exhausting to be on your feet or talking to people whether you're even just looking at everything or if you have your own booth it can be a lot but especially if you have your own booth you have to be on you have to be there but then in the evening yeah. it, especially philly bike expo and uh the bit that i've been to nabs it seems like there's after parties that tend to be at least sort of more industry sort of insider like on a friday night at philly bike expo they'll do vendor bender which um it's sort of open to the public, I think, but like nobody's there yet because the show doesn't start until Saturday. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun or, or the small dinner parties yeah. that kind of break out. I heard, you, I heard you talk about that in, in one of the other podcasts. And I was like, yes, that's the way it used to be. That, that would be great. Because uh, NABs now, it, the last ones that I went to were so exhausting. So, so back up, you know, when it was separate, I love being in the booth. I love doing trade shows and my wife does too. It's mm. really a lot of fun. Put a full energy into it. But then it was nice. It's okay. That's done. And now we can have the after party and stay up late and, you know, carry on, but it's different. And so by the time we got to Austin, it was just, the after party was public. 
So you go to Mellow Johnny's to see the band, and I'm surrounded by customers, and they're just asking me questions, you know, which is great. I mean, it's great to get the uh, the attention, but I just I was so tired. And yeah. uh, uh, that particular year, I came down with the flu and got sick, and um, and for other reasons, because I had had uh, worked myself to exhaustion prior to, to get the show. That, Prior I mean, to the show. That that's the case for a lot of frame builders for a lot of shows, I think. Yeah, I took six bikes. We had a double wide booth. Uh my wife sewed a giant Texas flag. It was a good show. Um and I got in a magazine. <laughs> I got yeah. first issue of Paved or or it was Paved magazine, it was new. And uh uh it was good, but I was just exhausted, and I stopped going to NABs after Austin. When um, I, and that, when it I, hurt, though. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. When I did my interview a couple months ago with Sam from Naked Bikes, he was talking about the outlandish bike that is 2008 or I, somewhere in there that he made yeah, for NABs. Yeah, I listened to that one. Yeah. I didn't really like that interview, but he was saying that, yeah, it, he said the same thing. It had the desired effect, right? Like, he made this bike or maybe it didn't in some ways, that it, he didn't immediately get sales from it, and maybe it was actually negative for sales, but that in the long run, it, it gave people this point of reference to know who he was and to be familiar with his work and his name, and that in the long run, that was incredibly helpful to him to like have uh, to one best in show yeah. and to have made a bike yeah. that stood out even if it was too impractical for most people to buy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it worked on me. I, I went to his booth, I saw the bike and his layout, and when I heard him describe in your podcast his reasons and his methodology, I was like, wow, that's that's what I should have done. You know, <laughs> instead, of taking, instead of taking three bikes, I should have just bought the wood bike and made it the centerpiece. And, and the way he explained how he hung it up high instead of low, I was like, oh, man, he is so smart. And we kind of got to be show friends because we were neighbors, I think, in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we got to know him at, at San Jose, and uh, he's a really nice guy. And, and I always like guys like him that can ride bikes because it's not always the case, you know? And, uh, I, I really like that. And, uh, and plus he's a fucking world speed record. Yeah. You know, 82 miles an hour order was. Yeah. We didn't even get into that much in my interview with him. I need to get him back. You got to bring him back. Talk about that. Yeah. But so, uh, yeah, he's extremely deserving of all that. And, uh, um, and, uh, and, and he did it really well. So it's, it's, it's fun to, even though I failed, kind of failed at it, it's, it's great to hear that and, uh, hear that through your podcast. Cause I wouldn't have heard that otherwise. And, uh, it's, it's good to reflect back on it and say, wow, that, that, that was the way to do it. And, uh, I was a little jealous. I was a little jealous cause he did the bike one and, uh, and then Lance Armstrong bought it. And I saw it years later when we were in Austin. And I was like, wow, man, he did it. And uh, that's what I was trying to do, but it didn't happen. Yeah. Fell short. Well, it's hard because this industry is full of so many freaking talented people who are willing to put an absurd amount of hours into these kinds of things. And so you're not – it's not like you're just – opening up a corner store in your small town and you know the other people probably are kind of dispassionate and if you just show up and try then you you know you'll stand out it's like when you go to nabs or one of these shows you're not among dispassionate people who are just there you're among the other people who are really really trying 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, it did help me, I guess now that I think about it, because uh, the next year, so I made the wood bike, and and then we went back 2007 to San Jose, and I decided no more show bikes. I'm only bringing customer bikes as they are, and uh, powder-coated, you know, that's, that's what they look like. Yep. This is what you're going to get, and these are real people. And I try to align it so it was all San Francisco customers, you know. So I did kind of do some leapfrogging with orders to get it, you know, aligned right. So mm-hmm. they picked up the bike at the show. That was, that was like, a really good coup there. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was so sad. Everybody else was so sad, you know, packing their shit up. <laughs> and especially with the complicated booths, because as the years went by, uh, Betsy really helped me with that. Is that we made the booth simpler and simpler and easier to get and set up. Yeah. And so by the time we got to Indianapolis, we set up like in 30 minutes. That's we roll into town, and well, actually I drove there. She flew and uh, you know brought my van in. I had shit on wheels. You know, we rolled it in, set it up. She had sewn this big backdrop. You know, poom, unfold it, done, and uh, and we're off going to dinner. And I go by the vanilla booth, which I don't know if you ever seen a vanilla booth before, but they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. But, they're like, you know, they're there with all the tools and all this wood. And, yeah. and I'm like, they look sad. I'm like, yeah, we're going to dinner. And uh, <laughs> and then when we tore down, same thing. It's like, okay, time to go home. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so that, I, I never, but, had, a know, very, I always, I never yeah. had a very fancy setup. And I think I should have or I will in the future probably have a slightly fancier setup. But I see these complicated ones. And I think, man... You're probably making that last minute before the show while you're also trying to finish the bikes. Then you got to move it all. Maybe you're within 10 or 15 hours and you could consider driving, but that's crazy. And then got to help you if you have to fly and ship it. And then is it going to show up and where do you ship it to? And you got to return it and you hope it doesn't get damaged. And oh my God. Yeah. It's crazy. I've I've driven to a lot of shows. I drove to Indianapolis uh, in my shitty ass uh, caravan. (laughs) <laughs> I had like this 86 caravan wow. and uh, East Coast style, and uh, which you know means the shitbox. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go. And because I just, I hate shipping stuff because all my bikes have fenders and racks and lights yeah. and wiring and all this stuff, and it always gets damaged in shipping. And so, and I'm a cheapskate. And so I, you know, drove straight out to Indianapolis you know, sleeping in the van in the freezing cold. And uh, so I would drive, I drove all the way to Akron in one stint. And then from then on, I would drive a few hours and then pull over and sleep for like 30 minutes until I woke up freezing cold and then wake up and then drive some more. And I did that all (laughs) the way. And then by the time I got to Indianapolis, this was like eight o'clock in the morning. And I was awake and I was like, okay, you know, I'm awake. And, uh, drove all around and checked it out and uh, uh but it's, it's nice because you have a vehicle when you get there yeah and and again i i used it you know to get around you know and haul people around even though there was no seats in the back it's like well you know i don't mind <laughs> don't mind sitting on a milk crate you know and uh so that was a lot of fun and uh so and i drove to richmond straight through i drove to Charlotte straight through. I drove to Austin. That was three days. Wow. Straight. Wow. By, my, by myself. And, uh, yeah. 
That's wild. Well, the, the, the things we do to facilitate a life in the bike industry, right? It's uh, it's yeah, not, you got to be kind of glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is glamorous, but it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the thing. Yeah. So uh, it's fun, but you know, I live a high risk kind of lifestyle. The only reason I have a safety net is because my wife is smart and stable and has a good job and is there, you know, uh, to take care of me when I fail. It's, I mean, that's the truth of it. And I'm very fortunate to have that. I'm very lucky. We get yep. along great. She loves bikes. We hike all the time. It's fantastic. Um, but you know, I, I think I would do it anyway. Cause I'm just that kind of person, you know? Um, and if I ended up being homeless, uh, I would do it. Um, yeah, because I'm just that kind of person. That's dedication. And, uh, yeah, and um, you know, and you can always get a job. So I figure. Yeah, I think the bike industry and the handmade bike industry and stuff tends to attract, um, you know, the romantic type. Somebody who says, "Yeah, maybe it's not practical, or maybe it's not always." E-. It's it's a lot of stubborn people who get into yeah. frame building. You need to be, I think. You need to be, because it's not going to be easy f- for a long time. And uh, there are ways to make it easier. And um, But, you know, really, if you want to persist over time, you got to be stubborn that this is the thing that you're going to do. Yeah. Yes. So I could talk for hours and hours and hours because <laughs> I'm that kind of guy. Um, and I'd be happy to, but it has been a long time, and I don't want you to have too much to edit. Yeah, well, uh, so tell me but, this, the the more recent couple of years, we should talk about that for a minute before, you know. Oh, before, yeah, but. yeah. Yeah, so I I had run aground with Ant uh, for a variety of reasons, and uh, it was very successful. I didn't, you know, make money, and it was good, but I had some problems, you know. I, I moved the shop maybe uh, three, four times, and each time you move, you spend a lot of money. I spent a lot of money promoting myself in addition to NABs. You know, I did lots of other shows and every year I gave away a cargo bike at a fundraiser mm-hmm. and a uh, complete bike, you know, and lots of things like that. And, uh, um, other fundraisers I made bikes for. And so I, I, I made a lot of money and I spent a lot of money and, uh, and then the last place I went, I didn't listen to my own advice, and I got my dream shop. It was fantastic. It was all legal, had real power, you know, had his and her bathrooms. Uh, it was fantastic. And it was cheap per square foot, but my overheads went up, and I uh, incurred some tax debt, which I was paying off. It wasn't a big, huge big deal, but, it, you know, it was there. And, uh, but then the phone stopped ringing. When and I didn't this? have, uh, 2014. Yeah. And so, and I went to NABS in Charlotte and that was successful. I actually sold some bikes there first time ever. And I thought things, okay, this is it back in business. And then just as the year went on, it just, I mean, it was there. I could have made it happen, but I, I think I got tired and I thought, you know, I could sell my tools and pay off the tax debt and, uh, go work at seven. Cause they had, I had, trained somebody that uh, got a job there and I said, Oh, we really like that guy. <laughs> you got any more? And I said, how about me? And they were shocked. And, uh, uh, so that's what I did. I, I, you know, I, I, I did 
kind of the right way. Like when I closed my shop, it was a slow process. I, um, you know, secured the job first and then, you know, told him, you know, I'd be there in three or four months and then spent that, you know, then made the announcement and started finishing up all what orders I had. Actually, I took a more, I actually took a few orders <laughs> and, uh, uh, finished that work and, uh, finished any, you know, warranties I had. I, um, uh, any business that needed to get taken care of, I took care of. And, um, and then, you know, it took a long time to sell the equipment, mm-hmm. um, and transport it. So I ended up selling it to one of my ex students in upstate New York. And I, um, uh, you know, in the price was moving all the equipment. So I rented this 26 foot truck with a lift gate and, um, I got a lot of experience moving machines. Uh, and, that's the last time I ever want to do it. So my new motto was I sold everything and I made a little home shop uh, in my basement. Um, this was out in Medfield at our old house. And uh, uh, I said, oh, I'll just build bikes on the side and they're going to be lugged. It's everything's going to be simple and no more machines. And, uh, um, and so that's what I did. I, I, I you know, so I, I, I closed the shop and went to work for seven. That's the basics of it. And I thought I'd build bikes on the side and I went to seven and it, I, it was very difficult. I knew it would be, I've welded titanium, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Uh, for, and I've always considered myself a really good welder, but, uh, they, they take it another level and this sort of Boston mentality is, uh, you know, we don't use pulse. Mm-hmm. We don't use pulse and, um, you, you know, you got to weld it yourself and, uh, so that takes it to a, a different level and seven, uh, uses really, really thin tubes. So, you know, we're talking like O two two on some cases Holy cow. and, uh, yeah, it's really difficult to not warp it and make it all fucked up, which I did. And, uh, so, um, so, but I, I, you know, I persevered. I worked there for three and a half years. I, you know, got through it. Uh, my supervisor was really hard on me. He was kind of really hard to work with. Fantastic welder, though. I mean, tons of respect for him, but he was kind of a dick to me. So, um, and the place was really hot. So, one of the, I've worked in sweatshops all my life, and it was seven is one of the hottest places I've ever worked. And with titanium, like titanium, there's no fans, there's no air conditioning, and it's a really hot mill building. And uh, I, I got really tired of it, and so I've, you know, I had a little shop set up in my basement here. We moved to Boston. So we're in a suburb called Belmont, which essentially, you know, it was a, a mile away from seven. I, it was really nice. And um, I quit one day. I, I, I told him I'd give him four years. I got the three and a half, but it was August. And like, I got people to keep asking me for orders and classes. And, and uh, I essentially walked out, you know, and uh and then just started, you know, filling orders, uh, that had kind of piled up, um, here at home. Um, and I started off, uh, doing TIG welding using one of my ex students shop down in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Cause they weren't, they weren't, they weren't using it. A lot of, a lot of people take classes and get tooled up and they don't do anything because life gets in the way. And, uh, I said, Hey, can I come down and use all the tools I made for you? And, uh, <laughs> so I, take welded some bikes and it was, I was like, Oh, this is good. And I did the builder's ball that where we met 
and I thought things were rolling along really well. Um, and then, then it just, you know, nobody knew I existed anymore. Hmm. And, uh, it just, the orders just weren't coming. And, you know, they, I mean, they were sort of there, you know, I, right now for the last two years since I've left seven, you know, I do about four to six projects a year, you know, a frame, a bike or a class. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I need, you know, 12 a year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was going at it at Ant, you know, like I said, I built, uh, you know, my biggest year was, I think, 47 bikes. And most of the time, and that was mostly frames at that point. But then I started doing complete bikes only. And uh, I would do about 30 a year. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, making racks and stems and chain guards and, um, you know, the lights, lots of roll-off bikes, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, doing assembly and all the powder coating. I brought powder coating in-house at some point. That was another expense I would mention. And uh, gratifying. So, uh, but I had to spend a lot of money. And that created some debt that I had to pay off. So, you know, getting the oven, the compressor, and sandblasting cabinet and booth. And expand my space. I had to double the size of my space. Yeah. That's anyway, all. I was unhappy at seven. I quit and then started doing ant again and kind of building myself back up. But I don't ever want to be where I was before. I want to be a home shop, essentially part-time. And I was working at Hot Tubes, uh, but it, they're friends of mine. I've known them for 25 years, and uh, they were really good friends. And uh, But I, you know, I'm just too much of an asshole. I can't get along with them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, yeah, we were button heads on stuff, stupid stuff, you know. And yeah. I, was, I was just like, yeah. So I still go out there all the time and shoot the shit. And I use their lathe, you know, to turn down four crowns. And uh, I love going out there. They love me going out there, but I'm not going to work there anymore. Yeah. Well, it's and good to know I, when to, yeah, maintain a relationship or, uh, you know, what needs to happen to make that. Yeah. So when I, I went to work there, I they, they were like, oh, man, we need some help. It was like nabs crazy. It was just complete chaos. And uh, Jordan was like, oh, man, he was just holding his head. He had all these fancy paint jobs to do. And I said, hey, well, I can work for you. And uh, Toby's like, nah, I don't want to ruin our friendship. It's like, ah, no problem. Forget about it. And then, like, he goes to training camp. He has a racing team. And he went to Arizona. And he came back two weeks later. And he sends me an email. And all it says is, when can you come out? <laughs> <laughs> so it was good. Actually, it was a good six months. I did enjoy it up until I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's good to know when to quit. And uh, so Ant is, you know, rebuilding itself. Um, you know, my website's a little janky. I'm working on it. I unfortunately lost my domain. That's why it's a WordPress mm-hmm. um, location. Because I wanted to change uh, host and I let the name run out, and I was like, yeah, I'll purchase it. You know, this is when I was at seven. It's like, yeah, I'll purchase the name under a new host. And I didn't do it. I got lazy. And then somebody bought my name. Wow. So antbikemike.com has gone. So I'm like, well, it could be .net. You know, you know the game. And <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, well. I'll just leave it at .wordpress for now. Yeah. Um, so... With the classes that you've taught, uh, I know a handful of people who have taken the frame building classes that you've done. Yeah. You, you format yeah. those a little bit differently. 
Uh, how many yeah. of those have you done over the years? Uh, about a hundred. I would imagine that listeners to this podcast, some of them would love to take a frame building class. Uh, is that something that you will continue to offer maybe uh, after the virus is uh, maybe more in check yeah, or something? It's, like, what's what's your thinking on, about classes? Well, they're on hold right now because of uh, travel restrictions and, you know, all the lockdowns. Massachusetts is very particular about that. And, uh, I mean, I don't care so much. You know, I'm not too worried about getting infected. However, eh, you know, well, I complicate my life. And uh, so they're kind of on hold right now. But I wish people would take the class, uh, mostly because I think it's the best one out there for the hobby builder. And uh, unfortunately, just about everybody's taking the class. It never takes my advice. And uh, they want to make it too complicated. And, and that in teaching classes, uh, it began as just a method to make money. Uh, because people just wouldn't stop asking me for classes. And I'm like, fine, here's a class, this, you know, this much money. And people started taking it, and I was like, well, I kind of like this. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it's one of the things that kind of killed my business. It, cre- it helped it and killed it at the same time. Classes were great, and I tur- it turned out after a couple of classes, I discovered that I enjoyed it. And I was good at explaining things to people. And, um, and I started meeting these people from all over the world. And some of them did start, you know, various types of hobby shops. But it was all TIG welding, and that's what people came to me for, for TIG welding. And uh, it's very difficult to teach people that in a short order of time, or yeah. if ever. Some people just can't get it. And um, But I did learn a lot, and the class morphed over time into lug building bikes, which is a little ironic, uh, and so I started off, like, when I started changing the class, it's like, well, let's just do a lug bottom bracket because that's the hardest place to weld. And I tended to help a lot there. And my main goal was to get them to weld, you know, the main part of the main triangle. I even had a custom tube set made for classes. It was wow. extra thick. <laughs> extra thick at the end. It's like, oh, look, you welded it. And uh, it looks great. So <laughs> a little heavy. But anyway, uh, so it's kind of morphed over time where I was doing more and more brazing. I've got better at it. That was the other thing is that I, I was learning. And so then I could teach people to do it. And then, uh, then I also, I was kind of unhappy with the classes with the tick welding because I wanted to look really nice and it would look like shit. They would be happy. The customer would be happy, but I, I'm looking at it. It's like, Oh God, you know, and I'd grind on it a little bit and help them out. And I was not satisfied with that. You know, one in ten people would be really good at it. Most of them weren't. They couldn't see. You know, you got to have really good up-close vision. Mm-hmm. And so then it kind of, I changed it to lug building, and in part because some people wanted it. And then I did one, and I was like, wow, this bike looks great. It's, you know, I could teach them enough to braise it very good. And I would help them with the finish work, you know, to clean up the lug lines. And then to powder coat it. And it's like, it looks pretty much just as good as a pro bike because it was a complete class five days the end of the week you had a powder coated bike chased and faced ready to go wow and and it would look nice and so that really opened my eyes to lug making and i got better at it and uh and i've always liked lugs 
and it was only going to Fat City that turned me into TIG welding and kind of went down that road. And, uh, but I was scared to do it before because I did, didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of taught myself, got the internet, got all my friends, and just gumption to just keep doing it until you get better at it. And, uh, um, and so that's what led to that. And so when I went to start my home shop, I you know set it up to just do brazing and uh, sold my welder. And, um, but I didn't, you know, kind of lose that because I was still, I was TIG welding. In fact, I got better, you know, working at seven. Um, so I can still weld, you know, at mm. this point, it's kind of like, ride, it's kind of like riding a bike, you know, yeah. I do some repairs. I'll do a repair, replace a C tube or something. And I'll go out to hot tubes. Like, it's like, oh, I'm going to suck at this. It's been a, you know, in six months. And, like oh, I'm burnt, and I weld it. It's like, oh, looks better than the the frame that I fixed. <laughs> and yeah, so, no, it comes back pretty quick, right? The, uh, yeah, you, you did it, it so much quick. for so many years. It's it's not. Yeah, I welded thousands of bikes, and you know, painted thousands of bikes. But I don't want to paint anymore, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, so I've just been kind of limping along, and uh, Betsy's the breadwinner here, so I make just enough money to like buy food like I and pay my phone bill and you know that kind of stuff and uh and and I, I spend a lot of money on food I have to note that I'm nuts about or we're nuts about eating organic food which as you know is an expensive lifestyle choice so, and uh um you know and we've gone so far as you know that she's making all of our uh um, things that we put on our body, you know, toothpaste and soap and shampoo and everything we make here. And, uh, just trying to, you know, we very much into leading a healthy lifestyle. We're very active. Yeah. We're both 56. We're both 56 and very fit and healthy. And, you know, we like to ride bikes and do mountain climbing and hiking and, uh, and things are going great. Yeah. So, uh, so things are going well. I would like a little more business, and I think it'll come. It's starting to pick up now. I've got some orders. Uh, I just took a. I just built a bike for Blue Lug in uh, Tokyo, who I oh, used very, to do business with. And cool. so I approached them. Yeah, I approached them last year and said, "Hey, <laughs> I'm back. You know, do you want to order a frame? I had one already built." And they go, "Oh, that's a little too big because it's like a 56." And so, but you know, good to know you're doing it again. And then you know many, many months go by. I'm like, oh, yeah, they don't, they don't like me anymore. And then lo and behold, a few months ago, they're like, Hey, we're ready to place an order. And, uh, so that's great. So it's for an employee there and I've got the bike built. I'm just trying to get it powder coated right now. And, uh, and then I, uh, some other businesses come through. So it's, it's starting to pick up again. So I think that maybe the tide has turned and maybe, you know, I can get to this sort of what I call this, semi-retired lifestyle that I'm searching for. Yeah. Low-key, low, low at-home. Uh, I have a small basement shop. We rent our house. We don't want to own. You know, We want to be a little more mobile, but we're going to be here for many years. And my landlord's okay with it um, to, uh, you know, to a fault. And I have a 10 by 10, actually 8 by 10 space in the basement that I've walled off and insulated and have ventilation. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a nice space and I've got a couple of other spaces that are for storage for our bikes and maybe a couple extra tools and a wash tank 
and uh, some little little bits and pieces here and there. But pretty much all the work is in the eight by ten space. That is the tiny. Yeah. yeah, it's tiny, but you know, it's kind of where I started. Uh, and was in a art studio. It was it was twice as big as that, but it was just as skinny. <laughs> and um, and I've been sort of nuts on uh, building tooling that is small as small as possible that can fit under my workbench. Yeah. And uh, and it's another obsession of mine. Uh, another tangent is that part of the classes and part of my personality that sort of leads up from where I was to where I am now is that I'm you know kind of a cheapskate. Uh, I'm sort of like the DIY tooling aspects. Uh, it's not as good as, you know, buying Anvil or, you know, all the rest. Um, if you have the money, that's great. It's going to be fantastic. You won't regret it. Um, but if you don't, and that's why I really think that my frame building class is the best, is it comes with tools Yeah. and food and food <laughs> and, and it's one-on-one. And if you follow my instructions, when you get home, you can you can start making frames yeah, and you will be successful at it if that's what you want to do. And so I think where sort of things get lost in the frame building class genre is that, um, is that they're kind of too long and drawn out and too many people involved and uh, that people try to build their dream bike. And I keep trying to tell people, this is not your dream bike. This is the first one that you're going to make. If that's what you want. If you want it to be a dream bike, I did do that. You know, people, it was just a vacation. It's something they always wanted to do. Then I would kind of help them make their dream bike as much as we could in a class. Mm-hmm. And that was it. They're done. They go back to whatever they're doing that makes real money. And boom. And, but then other people, they would say, I want to do this. And, and, you know, the first thing I want to do is, you know, polish stainless and I want to carve all this stuff. And I said, look, you've, you know, let's just work on, on building a good joint. Yeah, building a good joint holding a hacksaw and and it goes even further. And you've talked about this in one of your videos, which I used to watch on YouTube is that, you know, they, I would go to help somebody help the shop set up. And I said, yeah, I'll come over and help you. We'll do a follow up class. And I get there and it's like, your bench isn't bolted down (laughs) to anything. (laughs) And it's like, okay, you know, so I would spend time like, you know, let me get my hammer drill and, you know, we'll go to the hardware store and, you know, Let's, let's get all this secured down and, oh, wait, your bench is like, you know, six feet tall. Let's get it a little lower. And, uh, and there's, you need ventilation. It's like, oh, we got a window. It's like, no, you need ventilation, like you know, a fan that sucks the shit out of your face. And uh, or you're going to get a bad headache, you know, and, uh, and you're going to set off the smoke alarm and, you know, all those things. And, yeah. uh, and also with my class, Message the map gas torch, uh, lugged only, one type of bike only, everything socketed, easy, uh, the dropouts and C-stay caps and those sort of things. Nothing elaborate. It's actually a really nice bike, super nice bike. It's just not a fancy carved out thing. And I would find that um, in the culture of the hand-built movement is that there's all these new guys or people, I should say, and uh, as a you know, since I worked at a paint shop and I was a painter for many years and I see things in the raw, uh, it's, you know, some of them have it 
and you can see that in the raw. And then others, it's like a Bondo frenzy to cover it up. And the painters will do that because they want the business, or they'll do it at least on the first one. And, uh, you know, some guys are carving all this stuff out, and it's not done very well. There's file marks everywhere. It's, like, unsafe. You know, putting seat stays in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, seat tubes that are unsupported or, uh, you know, all this carved out stuff that's brazed on to the frame and uh which is not bad it's just that they were concentrating all the on all the things to make them stand out and look different which is not a bad thing to do it's just that they forgot about getting the basics done first yeah the fabrication essentials that make it yeah and then and then there's other people that just by their nature nail it right off the bat and I've, I've had classes with people like that and you can tell right away you know I'm teaching somebody how to TIG and it's like oh yeah you got immediately got it you just need to practice and I'll show you how to do it you know so you got some questions and same with all the other work and the machining and whatnot it's like you know they, they get it and the next day they remember everything and um, and you can see that so at the paint shop you know you get something from now Tommy <laughs> yeah and it is just so nice. It's like, and you tell them, it's like, yeah, it doesn't really need to be finished as much because we're going to sandblast it. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it looks so good because some people just have that yeah. uh, natural ability to do finish work. I'm not really one of them. I had to sort of force myself over time to you know, get better at filing and sandpapering, which is a little ironic because I was really good at it with painting. But when I got to metalworking, I wasn't as good at it, and it took me a while to get that eye. I still don't have it, you know, not yeah. like my some of my peers that I envy, like now, and um, I could name several. Uh, yeah. but he he kind of comes he kind of comes to mind, and 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 you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, and that's something I is enjoy about what I'm doing now. I'm taking a new journey, and I'm trying to learn how to brass brace lugs. Actually, I am doing it successfully, but I want to be more successful at it. So I'm going to change my torch setup. I'm, you know, getting better at filing and finishing. Um, I'm not doing any carving, really. Uh, not don't really plan to. I just want to sort of have that clean, brazed lug joint that doesn't need a lot of cleanup. Yeah. That's, that, that's what I enjoy. And I, you know, I would say with new people that that's what you should strive for is to try to make it secure and not burnt and straight and all those things before you move on to all the yeah. super aesthetic appeals, which is, is something to aspire to. I'm not, I always tell people, like, look, I'm not trying to down you or say stop because uh, you're doing something dangerous and stupid, which you might, we all do. But, you know, it's like, let's just back off a little bit. Try to get a little better before you go there. Yeah. I think and, and some of... people, they just don't even hear it. They just like, I've had people show me TIG welds. They go, hey, what do you think of that? I'm like, I think you need to practice. And they just look at me like, what? It's like, yeah. And, you know, I would weld them a joint and say, okay, sit this on your table. And if it doesn't look like that, you're not there. The, you know? I think part of what is appealing about the handmade bike is that it, in the ways in which it's different from the production bikes that we see that seem like commodities. And so, the polished carved details and the multiple color paint jobs and the perfect fillets and these more advanced things are probably 
a lot of times what draws to the construction of building bicycles. And so it's like you need a certain level of patience to say, like, that's where I'm headed. Let me, you know, it's like the karate kid with the paint the fence and the, you know, it's like you got to, <laughs> yeah. you got to do your rudiments yeah. for a while. You got to build up that base so that uh, when you graduate into the more advanced stuff, which is probably what you wanted to do the whole time, but you have the foundation there to really uh, make it work or, when I was getting yeah. started, I had a background in brazing and I wasn't, you know, it was a two week class with Doug Faddock, but then I didn't have, I didn't build any bikes on my own for like the first two years. I just, I didn't really have the, f- the fixtures and I didn't really think it was within reach, but I did a lot of torch work and a lot of hand filing and hacksawing so that when it came time to make the bikes, it wasn't easy, but, uh, the torch work was not really the, the struggle point for me. It was, uh, you know, the whole project had all sorts of tricks, but, you know, the, uh, the, the brazing and the hand filing and the sawing and stuff was not the biggest hurdle anymore. Yeah. You, you seem, from what I can tell, the type of person that is sort of keen to that uh, in short order. You know, like you, you seem like a person that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's not know, a good way to do it. Let's, you know, let's do it this way. That frame building class I took, I was 20 years old. I didn't have really any metalwork background experience, any meaningful background in that. And it was me, and uh, I was 20, and there was a guy, Raul, who's from France originally, and uh, he was 31 or something. And then there was a guy, Corey, who was in his 40s, I think. And anyway, I just remember uh, our instructor was like, hey, you know, hey, Corey's, I don't know if he's doing so good. He was very upfront with his opinions about how good we were at it. And, uh, Corey, yep. I don't know if he's really so strong at this. And, like, Raul's like, wow, man, he's just really taken to this. He's doing so good. And then he's like, Joe, I don't know, maybe he'll do, a, I don't know, maybe. And I was just, <laughs> I was kind of hurt that he didn't think that I was a natural or something, that he didn't think that I had it in me. And um, I don't know, maybe I'm not a natural. I think I'm stubborn enough to get there with TIG welding and brazing and machining and all these well, things. That, but, but yeah, maybe, I think Raul probably did take to it a little faster than I did. Yeah, well, I've been uh, proven wrong by my assessment of some students as well uh, a couple of times, and I said, yeah, they're, they're really struggling. You know, their eyesight wasn't good enough, uh, and it was just you know kind of horrible at the moment. But they persevered. They kept doing it and got a lot better. And you know, set up, took more classes from some other people, and um, and uh, have little shops. Uh, so I definitely have been wrong a few times, and uh, but but. Not, so that's just saying that I guess to people out there that are listening that you know if you're stubborn and you keep going at it you'll yeah. get better and uh, but some people are just naturally pick things up quicker um, I've been like that with a few things like TIG welding is something that came to me easy uh, not that I didn't have difficult moments at IF in the beginning uh, you know after that sort of beginner's luck area uh, but it did come easy and and painting as well. Uh, but for me, probably the struggle part is using the hand pile on the sandpaper and uh, cleaning lugs and cleaning the castings off. You know, like I, I've struggled with that, and uh, that's where I'm putting my focus now is trying to get good yeah. at that. So, like I often ask people at the end of the interview, and we talked about this a little bit, for other people who are interested in the handmade bicycle and getting their hands on that process, what are some some pieces of advice that you would share, you know, like keeping your overhead low or whatever it is that that you yeah. feel like well, is important that you've learned? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, that could be rather long-winded, but I, could, I guess I could focus on a couple of key things. One is you really have to have a workspace, whether yeah. it's uh, you know a basement or a garage with heat uh, or power, uh, and or you know not like power for machines, but you know a light. And uh, um, so a space, a ventilated space that is safe and that you won't get kicked out of. You know, so that's really important. And the next is a workbench that's secured to the wall and the floor uh, so that your vice is not janking around. You don't have to have a, a fancy vice. You could buy a cheap vice, but have it bolted securely. And so that, that's really, really key because even if you, and I'm, so I think you ran into this with your progression, is that you can take the class, which is, Doug Braddock's class is a really good deal. So that's a little different, but you know, if it's my class or somebody else's, you know, it's, uh, you know, $3,000 because there's travel and, you know, all the things associated with it. It's mostly around that cost. Uh, so you take it and then you get home and you don't have a workspace to continue and then you forget all that stuff mm -hmm. and maybe it gets lost. So I really try to urge people to get your workspace uh, set up first and, you know, not worrying about frame jigs and all the fancy tooling, uh, just get the basics down of tooling. So a bench vice that's bolted to the ground in some way and some minimal tooling, you know, a hacksaw and the ventilation is really important. You know, I just used a, one of those tubular fans you buy from Harbor Freight for 90 bucks and some 12 inch, um, vent hose and it's just taped taped all together and goes, you know, it's got a dryer vent. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I could, I took the, took the window out and put a dryer vent in and, uh, it's just right over where I braze and it sucks the stuff away. Yeah. It's really important. And so that, I think that's really the most important thing, whatever you learn, if you don't have a place to work, yeah. it makes it incredibly difficult. Um, so try to get that worked out first. That's, that's really the main thing. And, and then if you do become proficient at it enough to sort of go to, to become a hobby builder, really, <laughs> to go from learning to hobby builder is to keep your overheads low. And then so you could start to charge money for your work after you've done successfully, you know, some run of bikes for some amount of time. And then you start selling things for money. Uh, it's to always keep your overheads low, as low as you can. Um, and I think all the, all the successful people will, will tell you that, that have their home shops and that could be difficult. So, you know, it's, it was difficult for me in the Boston area. Uh, if you're in Providence or Worcester or, you know, one of these shithole mill towns, you know, you can get mill space for cheap. Uh, but you know, if you're in an expensive area, you know, where there's nothing but, contract contractor uh condos they call them you know mm -hmm. you know even, even if it's uh 1500 a month it's like it starts to add up when you yeah, start adding everything else and, and uh and it but that's okay like say if you got the business so if, if the customers are buying stuff then it's really kind of a non-issue you just go yeah um, i i think and, uh, space truly <clears throat> is so important to have and i think when you don't have it it's the only thing you can think about. And when you have it, it's easy to forget about it. And uh, it's like 
somebody who has some sort of space and you ask them for advice and they're like, I don't know, like they don't even think about it anymore because they, they solve that problem. They're on to the next thing, but you can't do anything without space. You can't practice your technique. You can't pick up a machine that you got a good deal on or that you saw for a good price. These machines are not, you know, old milling machines and lathes. They don't, I mean, out East anyway, they don't cost anything. A lot of places in the world, you can pick up that old stuff for really not that much money for what it is and for how useful it is. But if you don't have space for it, you can't do anything. Or if your space doesn't have any power, you can't do anything. Or if you're renting and your landlord doesn't want you to use that, then you can't do anything or, or you run the risk of getting kicked out once they find out. Or it's really, um, and for years I rented this space real cheap that was 400 square feet and it was had some frustrations, but it really was a great deal and it allowed me, I think a lot of my success with what I do today is, is you know, has I have that to thank for it because it just gave me an opportunity to, to stay focused without having to be immediately profitable or something. And then uh, I crammed that thing so tight, just crazy tight in there for so long, way too much stuff. I I lost a lot of efficiency and a lot of time just trying to make that space work when it didn't really. And, you know, shifting (laughs) things around, move this thing out of the way to use this, but then move it back. I was watching that progression, yeah. And it was just, it got crazy near the end. And so now I'm in a much bigger space and it's great. And it is a lot more money. I think for where I'm at, it totally makes sense, but uh, I never could have started here. And so anyway, you know, if you if you have a house that has a garage or if you have family who has some space they're not really using or if you find a deal on some sort of whatever it is like that. Yeah, I think you're totally right that that is is mission critical to to getting anywhere with this stuff. Or I, I haven't heard of that many people doing this, but if you have like a maker space that you have access to that could be huge or i just interviewed sean handerhan he works at a cnc prototyping shop and he gets to use this sort of manual yeah. mill and fabrication area to build bikes and yeah. any of those creative solutions would be amazing also well that's how a lot of people um carl at vicious started that way he had its corner in a machine shop um, um seven started that way in a corner of somebody else's machine shop um IF started that way in the corner of somebody else's machine shop. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. So let me back up. So at IF, we were in this basement shop of this dingy place in Dorchester. And it was this really old place run by this old guy. And he would let artists work there. And it was like, it wasn't a collective, but he would let people in and you'd pay a little bit of money. And I'd squeeze my welding table next to the bandsaw so I'd have every night I'd have to cover my welder and table with this big plastic sheet and I'd be working, there'd be sawdust everywhere. And, oh and then God. the chop saw was behind the fiber wheel chop saw was right behind me and Jeff would be there cutting some tubes and, and the sparks would be flying down the back of my neck. And they had cats there and uh Wow. The cats would like pee on our tube boxes, you know, shoe <laughs> temper boxes. And they had fleas and uh some the whole place got infect infested with fleas. And I would be at the welding table trying to weld these IF frames in the beginning with flea collars around my ankles. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's crazy. The, yeah. The, the bike industry so, uh, is just, it's so funny. Uh, maybe it's tragic in some ways, but, you know, we all just <laughs> love bikes. And so, like, we'll put up with stuff that most people would never put up with. Uh, yeah. or, you know, a lot of us have historically and a lot of people still do. And, uh, and I think it's worth challenging that, you know, it's like, to some degree, it's like you're, you, you all need 
to, you know, have health care and save for retirement and take care of yourselves. And like we all deserve vacations. And I think sometimes people are a little too willing to just give it away for free. And um, I think it's important to know your own worth and know your own time. But on the other hand, I totally understand it. And I, you know, I never really have paid myself that much for this work. And, uh, you know, I've been willing to work at bike shops and do bike delivery and these different things uh, because, you know, it's just like it's the culture, it's the lifestyle, it's it's what you want to do. Yeah, no, I think you're doing great. I'm really uh, happy for the stuff you're doing, and it looks really nice. I mean, I haven't whole, seen the tube bender in person, but, you know, you can tell. It looks good, and I've seen the bends, so uh, I look forward to seeing uh, the other things you come up with. Uh, I am having a hard time wrapping my head around your frame jig method because it works of course but i guess i'm just too old you know it's like i gotta look at it you know <laughs> facing the right way i can't do the math and and it, it's just gotta look like a bike to me so like i've seen yeah. a bunch of pictures made that way it's like yeah that's that works if you can figure it out and it's gonna be cool and there's a lot of people are gonna love it but i unfortunately i'm too old yeah the way that mine sets up is yeah the head tube is always 90 degrees to the the sort of main extrusion and so you know there's just dimensions that you get out of your cad software which for most people will be like cad but um let me interject for a second back on advice my next part of advice is buy bike cad Yeah, just do it. It is worth it. If, that, if there's any tool worth having, yeah, uh, more so than a fixture, and is to have BikeCAD because it's it's such a joy to use, and it's really improved my life. Yeah, and I resisted I resisted it for a long time because we you know the Fat City way and IF for a long time is we just had a spreadsheet, we just looked at the numbers, and you just. Looked at the numbers and followed your instructions, and everything worked out fine. But it didn't, you know, it didn't work well for prototyping. Yeah. And uh, the great thing about BikeCAD is you can design a bike in a lot of different ways that would work with your fixture, for example, and all the others, and or make or ones that you make up. You know, the ones that I build on a piece of uh, MDF and mm-hmm. draw it out. Uh, you get your XY coordinates. It's just, it's got all this information. It's constantly improving, which is free to you. And after you purchase it, uh, I just think it's the most helpful tool yeah. anyone could have uh, for making bicycles. And because it's purpose built software, um, it's not $7,000, you know, yeah. CAD. Yeah, it's uh, well supported. Uh, Brent is uh, just so friendly and awesome, and uh, I really believe in the product. I think Carl Strong. So many people on this podcast have said exactly the same thing, and so uh, if anybody is listening is still on the fence, you, uh, you will not regret it. Nobody ever regrets buying bike cad. Hasn't happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I could talk forever. Yeah, I'd enjoy. No, it. Let's let's. Uh, so I don't want you to have a million things to edit out. And uh-huh. Hopefully, you can. <laughs> good luck with that, and I uh, look forward to uh, seeing what you cut out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good to it's go. Pretty long one. Nah, hey, people yeah. people never once complained about the length, so that's got to be the goal. Is I got to make it long enough that finally somebody will tell me. This one was too long. So, I mean, if this is the first episode where I ever get that critique, uh, yeah. then, then, you know, that's good. Because you, you, 
You can't find the limits or the boundaries if you're not pushing it. You know, you gotta you gotta test yeah. the waters sometimes. So this well, is going you know, up unedited, I mean, other than uh, you know the intro. Yeah, well, you know, Joe Rogan, he's got three-hour podcasts. So. Exactly, and my name sounds exactly the same as his with a little bit more. I was, I was tempted in my sense of humor. <laughs> I was going to say, hey, Joe Rogan, I'm so happy to be on your show. He's like, oh, no, this is, this is Joe Rogan buck. Yeah, it's so like, oh. he's like, ah. uh, he's probably got <laughs> the most successful podcast on earth or something. He's like top five at least. I hear more about his podcast than any other, so... Uh, I'm basically right there, you know, like uh, same yeah, name you're right. sounding. I swear yeah. you're right there. You're gonna get it. So. <laughs> well, for the handmade bike in- industry, maybe that's true. But <laughs> well, I think you are. I, like I said, I hadn't listened. I, you know, sorry to say, I hadn't listened to any of them because I've been busy and yeah, whatever. Uh, not doing that, and uh, I've been listening. I listen to lots of other podcasts, and so I was, well, I can't fit it in. So I hadn't, but I thought about it. You know, I kept seeing the guests. Like, oh, I should listen to that. And then it was really when you got in contact with me, I said, oh. I should listen to a few. And of course I did. And then it's like, Oh, I want to listen to this one. So I've listened to like 10 of them now That's in, great. In, in three days. Yeah. So uh, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I've learned some things uh, that I, uh, that's a whole nother story. I, there, I could have a whole nother podcast with you about your podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so thanks. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on it. Help me uh, get this thing out. You know, I ask a lot of people to be on the show, and a lot of people would like to be on the show, and some people say, oh, I'll do it later, or, uh, you know, I'm busy or something. And so, um, you know, I can't do this. Sh- it's a guest format show. I can't do it without the guests. And uh, you have a long and storied uh, story. I don't know that word. Anyway, uh, you have a long <laughs> history in the bike industry with a lot of uh, interesting companies in your own work. So really happy to get you on and to get your story. And uh, hopefully it means something to somebody else, too. Okay. Thank you. It's good talking with you. Happy New Year. You, too. See ya. All right. Bye-bye.